shaft. Shaft, 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 shaft. Shaft. Shaft, 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 shaft. I'm Samuel Jackson. I'm John Shaft. Shaft. Shaft, shaft. Here is my uncle. He's John Shaft. Shaft, 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 shaft. He's not my uncle. He is my dad. And now I have a son. And his name's also John Shaft. Shafting the shaft. Wait, so the song was secretly about the 2019 shaft the whole time? I went through a couple drafts of the song because I felt like I was worried about making it felt, feel a little too focused on the Tim Story movie. But I felt the need to upfront acknowledge th- how bizarre the relationship between the three films just titled Shaft yes, is. It really yes. is a lot. What was the melody there? Uh, n- the theme to Night Court. So Demi. Got it. The first episode we ever did that wasn't about Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, back when we thought this was only going to be a podcast about Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, was, of course, of course, about David Dobkin's motion picture, The Judge. Sure. So I thought it would be funny to call that episode Judging the Judge and rewrite write lyrics to the theme to Night Court for that episode. Then some point in that episode, I promised that we would do an episode on Ang Lee's Hulk one day called Hulking the Hulk. So when we did that years later, I sang a Hulking the Hulk song. How have you not done that for every episode since? I want to make it count. And this felt like a, a the right one. You only busted out for the big ones. This felt like the right one because this is a song with a famous theme song. A yes. movie with a famous theme song. It's a swerve, one could say. Yes. right. Because Ben, right before we recorded, texted, should we try to come up with a shaft version of the theme song and i said no i got something planned which is instead of doing that instead of doing what people would like sure let me do the night court (laughs) theme song again yeah you gotta make them wait for it but also hulk and the hulk judging the judge were both about the weird relationships between the father and the son Mm. that's true that's true and of course this is about the weird relationship between uncle and nephew sorry sorry i mean father and son they're actually father and son okay so david you told me you have not watched Shaft 2019. I have not, but I do know that it retcons the very important piece of information that Shaft 2 is Shaft, Shaft's son, uh, not Shaft's nephew. Demi, have you seen it? I have, and I'm ashamed to say that that is the first Shaft I ever watched back wow. when it came out. Uh, I was in New Zealand when it dropped, and it was on Netflix for free there, so I was like, yeah, let me check this out. And I immediately was like, this sucks. <laughs> it's bad. It's very bad. I I feel bad because I I have a hate love relationship with uh, Tim Story. Just I I think he gets a little. He, he's very much like a studio gun, but I think sometimes he turns out on not as bad as it's criticized thing. And I do think Shaft yeah. 2019 is bad. B- Barbershop is good. Barbershop, yes. Ride along is fun. I yes. I like that's that's my thing with Tim Story. Okay, I was thinking this while watching this is like. Tim Story is this guy who both I feel like needs to be defended a little bit and also needs to be attacked a little bit. Like you're like, there's no middle ground for him. And you know what? Fantastic Four enjoyed it. See, I hate those movies. I I get it. And I I would never uh, argue with someone who says they're bad. But I do feel like that in that period of superhero film, that one was very fun to me. And uh, also just where is uh, Yon Griffith now? 
yeah. whatever his name is. That's just an odd thing that he got that role for those two movies. Yeah. He he had a show where he like he's like a cop who dies at the end of every night. Oh, fuck. I, I believe it's it the now. opposite. I believe it's that he never dies. He's a cop who's been alive for like 400 years. No, that is New Amsterdam. And that starred Nikolai Coster-Waldo. I remember that show. Is that what happens um, in New Amsterdam? That's not a doctor show? Then they did a doctor show also called New oh Amsterdam. Oh, my God. Jesus. No. Um, but the, the Jon, Jon Griffith uh, show was called, fuck, uh, Forever. Forever. Mm, and right. let's see. He's a medical examiner who is studying the dead to solve the mystery of his own immortality. So he also is, is Thank you. Uh, immortal. Yes. Two immortal shows. But he was an immortal M.E., Griffin. You know, like, we, we all... I'm, uh, yes, sure. Right. I, I've been watching uh, uh, Penn and Teller's Fool Us, which is only streaming on CW Seed. We were talking about uh, obscure streaming services right before this. And CW Seed, in addition to having CW shows, also has shows from other networks that they don't care about. So like Forever, which was an ABC show, I think, produced I think, I think by so. Warner Brothers, is on CW Seed. And if you watch Pantella Fool Us, you'll get 18 commercial breaks to promote Forever, a show that was canceled seven years ago and only oh had one God. season. Yeah. Are you um, saying Seed? Yes, it's called CW Seed. That's a insanely bad name. Yes. Yeah, it's I don't understand the name there. But I feel like every other net thing is like just us plus or us max. So I, I give them credit for just being like, we don't want to do that. It's very, very bizarre. Uh, yeah. But yes, no, Tim Story is a guy who either like surprisingly over delivers or ruins what should be a slam dunk. Yes. And it feels like there's very little middle ground. Uh, I have not seen. He did the Tom and Jerry, right? He did the, the Tom the and Jerry new, movie. How is that bizarre? Haven't heard good things, but I have heard it's surprisingly not enough Tom and Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> they they fucked up. They forgot to put Tom and Jerry and in it, which is look tiny <laughs> mistake. All right, so that's a wrap on Jost. Oh wait, we got Moretz, we got Pena, we got Jost. What are we? What are we missing? That, that was a mistake. Also, when they first screened it. They did a test screen. The title was Jost and Jerry. <laughs> Sony's got the rights to Tom. We're doing the best we can. <laughs> it's a workaround. Um, Tom uh, yeah, yes. Tim Story, a very, very bizarre career. Sometimes I feel like he deserves more credit. Sometimes I, I think he deserves more shame. But uh, the Shaft movie is a bizarre uh, misfire. I'm I'm front loading this talk here because then we're going to talk about John Singleton's Shaft primarily because this, of course, is blank check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. And it's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. And this is not a mini series on the films of Tim Story. We're not ready to tell the story yet, the never-ending story. No, it's not impossible that we could do a Tim Story miniseries, right? Look, I was doing this recently. I was curious what the current rankings are of highest-grossing black directors. Coogler. See, Coogler, you would think so, just because, obviously, Black Panther is so huge. Yeah, but he's, and Creed. Creed's big. Black Panther is humongous, but he's right. only done three movies. F. Gary Gray has him beat. 
F. Gary That's... Gray has the title now. Because he did a, he did a Fast and Furious. Oh, he yeah. did a Men in Black. Right. right so, like, right. he did Fate of the Furious. That's a billion in the bank worldwide. Then he gets a Men in Black. He gets straight out of comp. That, like, there's enough Italian job. There are enough big movies in there. But Fate of the Furious pushed him over. Then I think Coogler's number two and Tim Story's number three. Wow. Tim Story was one for a while. Which is crazy because I think of those uh, directors, he's probably the first one where I think a lot of people will just be like, I don't know who that is or who he's right. worked on. Or not the first one, but just like, I think you'd have a chance that F. Gary Gray would be like, I know who that is. Sure. I and I and like I know what F. Gary Gray looks like. I don't know that I know what Tim's story no, looks like. me neither. I Googled him and I'm like, oh, look, it's like a guy with glasses. He's bald. You know, sure. Can I say he he looks like John Singleton's dorky younger brother. Sure, he's 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 bald. They're he's both bald, bald men. and he's got glasses <laughs> like Singleton, but he just looks very kind of like meek and quiet. Um, but but yes, it's like right. Okay, so he he did Barbershop, which launches a franchise. He does two Think Like a Man movies. He does two Ride Along movies. He does two Fantastic Four movies. He does Taxi. He does Taxi. He does which I Hur- love. Hurricane Season, which does not exist, which was a post-Katrina, Forrest Whitaker inspirational basketball drama that the Weinstein Company pretty much never released. And then Tom and Jerry. Like, that's a pretty fucking weird filmography. Yeah. I'm just looking at... I mean, Hurricane Season starred both Bow Wow and Lil Wayne. Yeah, it's like Lil Wayne's biggest acting role. Jeez. He's second build. The crazy thing is that all like none of these movies feel like him taking uh like just building up so, like he he doesn't feel like he's done a blank check movie yet. These no. all feel like for studio. No. He's a studio guy. Like the yeah. biggest blank check he ever got was like that he I don't know, did a movie with the Silver Surfer in it or something. Like I I just don't right. know where where he was like I can't, you know, I've got to do this you know i've got to show people how to think like a man too and this is a perfect bridge and of course joining us today to, to help build this bridge is our dear friend return to the show demi adija hello writer for the amber ruffin show which people should watch on peacock is a great show um among many other notable credits uh but that's the big difference, right? Is that Tim Story is the ultimate company man, and he'll be like, yeah, I wanted to do Ride Along. I love my buddy Kevin Hart. I'd like to make a movie that makes him a movie star, right? right He'd be like, yeah. yeah, I was a Fantastic Four fan growing up. I like Tom and Jerry cartoons growing up. But none of the shit feels super personal ever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel yeah. like he necessarily has a personal statement within him. And... uh uh, even the Shaft remake just kind of feels like a shrug from where it's like, oh, that feels like a fun property to reboot. Yeah, which I also, I, I think I partially credit that to uh, Kenya Barris, who wrote it as well, because I yeah. feel like a lot of the things he does just feels like there's not really a take here as much as it's just like, w- what's a new way to do this prop- existing property? Okay, I swear to God we're going to talk about the fucking John Singleton Shaft, right. which I would argue is very much a passion project. Definitely. is a bizarre case where you have a filmmaker experienced massive success early on in his career, then experienced a series of underperformers. The bloom had sort of fallen off the rose for him. He did something that's on its face was like, here's a guy trying to rebound commercially with an obvious slam dunk studio movie but it was actually as much a passion project for him as any of his earlier films that is true but as you say right it's like this was kind of a i remember when this was announced and i was like a 13 year old movie nerd i was like 
oh, Samuel Jackson is like the new shaft, like brilliant. Like I'm so excited. Money in the for bank. That. Like right, right, right. That's a great idea. You know, like I, it was exciting. People. I, honestly, when they announced the fucking new thing with, you know, three generations of Shaft or whatever, I was like, oh, that could be good. And then obviously it was not good. And that that's that happens. But I was excited for that. He's such a slam dunk Shaft that it's so clear that they were like, we don't have there's no new person that could fill that role. We have to make him also the star of the 2019 one, even though they're like, it's another generation. It's like he's not the focus. The new kid is not the focus. It's like, let's bring back middle Shaft. Yeah, isn't the new kid? They're all just like, hey, get out of here, you twerp! Like, yeah, they're, not they're just the like kid kids nowadays. Right. Oh, it's such a, I, it's I, so bizarre. I could talk forever about why I think it's like a, first of all, a perversion of a perversion of Shaft. It just feels like, uh, someone just like three levels, like a story you heard from someone who heard a story about Shaft, and then they wrote a movie based on that. It's just off. I have more thoughts I want to share in that movie. I think we should. Put a pin in it and come back yes. to it post Singleton talk because there is a lot of context for this middle shaft entry. Um, but I just want to say before we go into this, just because you mentioned it, Demi, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Okay, is Kenya Barris one of these guys who is like a pseudonym for a writer's room of fifteen people? Like <laughs> I know there is literally a Kenya Barris, but is there also like? A, a a Voltron. Is it a Hans Zimmer scenario? Right. Is there a Hans Zimmer? Is there like a ghost kitchen of Kenya Barris's? Because you look at his career, right? He he is like a TV vet, right? He's writing on all these shows, and uh, you know, like, but 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 kind of like you know, okay, he writes for the game. Are we there yet? Girlfriends, Soul Food, the TV show. He created America's Next Top Model, which I always forget. Yeah, that's wild. That me. it was his idea. That is wild. But then 2016, okay, from 2016 on, and he's already created and is show running blackish at this point. And over this time, he also expands to mixedish, grownish, what have you, right? Right. 2016, Barbershop, the next cut. 2017, Girls Trip. 2019, Shaft. 2020, The Witches. 2021 coming to America announces the showrunner on the cheaper by the dozen Disney plus reboot with Gabrielle Union and Zach Braff. I also want to point out that he is not the sole writer of any of those movies. He's a shared credits guy for these things. They bring him in for reboots, revivals, things like that. And very often it feels like the other person he shares the credit with is someone who is on the writing staff of one of his shows. And it feels like he comes in, gives the pitch, and it's like the take is the new Shaft is a pussy and his dad's got to teach him how to man up. And they're like, great, $500 million. And then he passes it over to someone on his writer's I feel staff. like that's exactly what happens. Right? He, he, he acts as the showrunner for these movies in that like they have other people doing – like writing on it but then he comes yes. in and is like all right i'll give you notes on this and what if we do this here and it's like you're just doing punch up on this movie yes absolutely yeah i i and we have to talk about shaft um but i have not yet seen coming to america neither have i i have seen it um i i've been meaning to watch it um i know that he's only i know that the original writers already also worked on it right blaustein mm-hmm. and sheffield or whatever but i remember reading an interview with eddie murphy because I found out that the premise is that he has like a daughter or a son. A son. He has a son, right? He has both. He That's has, every reboot. 
Right, but he has like a son in America. David, the he... premise the premise of the movie is he has only daughters, which means he will not be able to pass his kingdom on. Sure, right. So he wants his daughter to marry some shitty guy, and then they find he had a a bastard love child with Leslie Jones one night when she essentially date raped him. This is the premise of the movie. Right. This is the thing. I, I have seen Coming to America multi- many times. It's a movie I like. And I was like, film. uh, Wait, why? How does he have a son? I've seen that movie. He's very kind of chaste and quiet yeah. in Coming yeah. to America. Like, and then I read some interview with Eddie Murphy where he was like, "Yeah, like we weren't sure how to do a, a sequel." And then someone wrote the script where it's like, "Oh, but he actually secretly had a one night stand," and that really unlocked the story for us. And I'm like, "It did. That unlocked the story." No. <laughs> that means this is the best take we had. and Right, that's oh. what it sounded like to me. It was like, oh, you know, okay. The other thing I saw him say in an interview that unlocked the story for him was he was like, well, I was like so chaste and like virginal in that original movie. I didn't know how we could possibly justify that there was some conception that you didn't see. And then he was like, and then I saw The Irishman. Uh-huh. And I was like, the technology is there. We can shoot a new scene. And there is a new scene in coming... Numeral to America, where oh I swear God, to God, no. it is maybe the best use of de-aging technology I've ever seen. Like, the scene is bad, but the technology, they finally cracked it. It's perfect. Oh, I wonder if that movie was Eddie Murphy going like, I can play characters again. I can play all sorts of, not as much makeup. I can yeah. just be like, de-aged. Oh, like, he sees the Irishman and he's like, oh, I can do that instead of yeah. sit in a chair for Norbit six Norbit 2, hours. let's right. go. Hey. I would watch it. I will say he he does the deep makeup again. Like he does go for it. He yeah. he plays the the old Jew at the barber shop. He plays yeah. the the sexual the hot sexual chocolate guy. Chocolate, right. right, right. Like uh, yeah, I don't know. That movie is anyway interesting. Is the better version of what the 2019 Shaft is trying to do, but has similar weird. Can you bear us? Let me reboot your property hmm. uh, with millennials' uh, uh, fingerprints on it. But Shaft is I just think this is an important stat that does not get discussed that much. Shaft is obviously, it's Ernest Tittyman, right? Uh, writes a book, Shaft, mm-hmm. about a sort of street-level, man-of-the-people, private detective. Yeah, Ernest Tittyman, like, I, you know, he's like, he wrote The French Connection, obviously. He's like right. a, a gritty crime novelist. He was like a crime yeah. reporter. He knows how this shit works. He gets hired to do French Connection off of the Shaft book. And then he sort of really? becomes like a little empire in and of himself. He starts producing the movies more. He becomes sort of like a developer of these things and combining sort of true life with fictionalization. But a key detail, Shaft in the book is white. In the first Shaft book, Shaft is white. Really? Really? He goes on. Wait. Yes. He goes on to write many more Shaft books in the wake of the films, and then Shaft becomes definitively as a character the New York City African American private detective. That is fascinating. But at the very least, Shaft's ethnicity is not defined in the original book. And I know for a fact that when they first optioned the book to make into a film, it was not intended to be a black character. That's so crazy because it feels it's like so down to the DNA that like Shaft is black that it feels like the story it, it couldn't happen with a white character. So I'm just like, what did they change? That's what I why I bring this up because yeah. you you look at the original Shaft and you're just sort of like, 
well, what movie is there if this guy is white? Right? Yeah, it's just a, like it just it's feels just a guy like who doesn't like cops. It's a crime movie. It's like sure. a, yeah, it's just yeah. like a yeah, the mob. He's got to right. deal with you know, like it's 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 such a marginal programmer at that point. Like I think uh, a Teddy Man sort of talks a lot about how he kind of had a very unpretentious approach to how to make engaging text and make these things like, you know, like jump off the page and whatever. But you also, you look at the meat and potatoes of the story of Shaft and there's not a lot there without that interesting element, right? Of just like, this is kind of the first black cop you're seeing in a movie like this. And, you know, his weird relationship between the authorities and the people on the street and what have you. Um, I think it's handled very deftly and like, smartly in shaft 1971 uh but but the thing i have not been able to nail down is the timeline of whether they hire gordon parks first and then he has the decision to recast to cast shaft with a black actor or if it was the other way around melvin van Mm. peebles had always taken credit for it because sweet sweet back comes out in 1970 and he said like that movie was so big that then at the last second they decided to make shaft black which is not the case well it kicks off the black exploitation uh sort of trend in conjunction with shaft but i feel like because they sort of came out around the same time i have to imagine that it was like either i just i also can't imagine a studio hiring a black director to tell a black story at that time like caring Right. So I, I can imagine they hired right. someone and then Gordon Parks was like, what if it's this? And they were like, yeah, whatever. That's my gathering of it. Because, yes, I think like Sweetback and Shaft were two separate things happening in two different silos that culturally came out within nine months of each other and sort of then within, within like three months of each other. They both came out in 71. They're, they're very close together. Yeah, they don't. Damn. As you say, right. Like Sweetback is a. That's an indie. That's the indiest of indies. Obviously, right. he's, you know, selling his bodily fluid. It's not. That's where Robert Rodriguez. But you know, it's like that kind of a situation <laughs> where Shaft is a studio movie. It's it's uh, MGM, right? Yeah, and it's the movie that kind of saved MGM. One of many films over many decades that saved MGM when they were on the brink of like bankruptcy. Um, uh, it, it was like a real revitalization. But like. You know, Shaft is very much a programmer, right? It's like it fits into this model of this kind of like private dick movie, but with this electric performance, with uh, Gordon Parks giving it this sort of like New York City electricity and obviously the the score. It's so good. Right. And then like Sweet Sweetback is like a primal scream. Like it's barely a narrative film. It is right. so much more experimental than I think most people realize And it is just sort of like a chaotic story about like a force of nature. And then I feel like those two things combine to get these sort of like outlaw vigilante black exploitation movies that like then becomes the model with like Fred Williamson movies and Pam Greer films and all these things that pretty much start the year after this, like the real capitalization. Shaft is not that lurid. Like obviously the song is incredible. I mean, Shaft rules. It's the best. I've seen it so many times. I just like it as a New York movie. It's a great New York movie. I like, you know, him walking around. He's so hot. He's just like insanely hot. The turtleneck. I couldn't stop taking note of just how good his skin was also. Like for for a movie at that time to like be able, just to be able to see someone's skin and feel like, whoa, it's not like, it's not like smoothed out by film. It just looks really good naturally. Like even when he's close. Anyway. 
it's it's a good point, Demi. Where like you know, this is a thing that uh, uh, people far more knowledgeable than me have discussed at length, and you should do uh, supplemental research into what I'm about to say. But like the very creation of film as a technology inherently had a lot of racial bias in it. Totally. And was was sort of chemically developed around white skin tones and notoriously black skin tones were really, really hard to capture for a very long period of time. And that is a thing that is very striking in the original Shaft movie is you have Gordon Parks, who was this like kind of polymath genius, master of all trades, but notably was like a very, very famous photographer. And you really yeah. feel like this is a movie where someone actually knows how to capture the African-American complexion on camera, especially when you're dealing with like New York City kind of verite style night shooting. It's pretty striking. Well, with that knowledge, maybe it, maybe it is possible. They were like, we want to do this with a, a black lead. We need someone who can shoot black people well. And they were like, well, let's get this photographer who's famously doing it well. But again, don't know. I, I think he I think Parks is the one who wanted to cast Roundtree. I I I now wish I had sort of looked more into but we're look we're going to talk about the Singleton shaft up right yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I I was trying to get definitive answers in the timeline here and I couldn't. It's weirdly hard to pin down. The reason I unlocked all of this and knew all of this and this is a humble brag but uh uh Michael Murphy, the great character actor Michael Murphy uh yeah. who is a regular of Robert Altman movies. Uh, in Brewster McCloud, which comes out in 1970, plays uh, Detective Frank Shaft. His character is like a bullet parody, but he's a guy who wears turtlenecks and the double shoulder holsters and is known for being super smooth and super slick. And it's funny because it's like the year before Shaft and other than being white, he has a lot of the similar characteristics of Shaft as a character. Mm. Uh, some years ago, they were releasing a, a, a Altman biography. And uh, I went with my father to the party where they were uh, uh, after the book had launched. And it was like a lot of other Altman family people there. And I went up to Michael Murphy because I'm such a big fan of Brewster McCloud and was just like, I'm just a big fan. End up talking to him for a while. And I was like, you know, no one ever calls out the fact that you were the original Shaft, which I said kind of half jokingly. And he said, how did you know that? And I went, what do you mean? I mean, like in Brewster McCloud, you play a character, a detective named Shaft the year before Shaft. And he went, oh, I didn't even put that together. I thought you were talking about the fact that I was supposed to play Shaft. What? <laughs> and, he, and he like secretly had, was was circling the role of Shaft? Like the, They what? were aggressively pursuing him. They wanted That's him to play Shaft. Wild. And he, I love Michael Murphy, but he is notably kind of, his stock and trade is that he is super white bread. I don't think the movie would have been as much of a hit. I feel like it would have faded no, into obscurity. It, it would have been any other cop movie, you know? Yeah. And Gordon Parks is like uh, the, what, The Learning Tree is... It's like 69, I think. Yeah. Or, yeah, like late 60s. Is this uh, landmark movie... Yeah, well, he, he, the Learning Tree is like the first American movie made by a black man, like basically, yeah. right? Like, Yeah, pretty much. I, I mean, it, it is... It's interesting. Like again, I feel like a whole. We it would be a whole episode to talk about the seventy one chef because, like, I think MGM hired like a black PR firm. 
they they like realized what they had on that's their the hands. thing after sweetback comes out they reframed sort of the whole marketing of the movie right right you know i mean i mean shaft also is the greatest second tag like shafts his name shafts his game like where you're like it is what does that mean <laughs> I, I, you know like uh, yeah okay <laughs> it is his game though I, I know i know um like I, everything the logo is the best i the only thing that's weird to me about Shaft is that they only made two sequels. Like, and I don't really, there's not really a big story for why that is because both Shaft in Africa was kind of a bomb, but like yeah. you could have done more Shafts. I, yeah. I think, I don't, I don't know what happened there. They did a TV show that didn't go anywhere. I think that was part of the problem. Right, I bought right, that right. box set and, and thought optimistically I was going to make it through the nine Shaft TV films. It, oh, that that was optimistic. Way too optimistic. But they tried did to you, like, did, did I what? Did I watch any of them? No, I did not even put the disc into did the you watch the mo- Did you watch the movies? Yes. I watched I mean, every the, Shaft movie in preparation right, for right, this. Right, right, yeah. Um, I did I, too, except for the Tim story. Yeah. Uh, the, the They tried to make Shaft into like Columbo. It was like, it'll be 90 minutes CBS movie of the week. Shaft solves one mystery kind of things. And they're a lot more rote. That would be brilliant if Shaft's entire thing was his detective process instead of just Which being like a guy who doesn't like the police and yeah. has, it's just sort of like, I don't know, overly sexual and also just like, I don't know. He, he just sort of shows up places. He's chill. Like, yeah. yeah, we're just following like the world's most basic investigation through these movies, right. right? And he'll like go see some mobster, and the mobster will be like, "Hey, fuck you!" And Chef's like, "I don't think so." And you're like, hey, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, <laughs> Chef isn't scared of this guy. He never fires first. He's always like defensive. Definitely, it's like I don't know. I think. Which is something that, and we'll get into Shaft 2000, but I think they really change that about the character in a way that does not sit well with me. They change a lot that I'm just like, yes. I think it's, I think it's a there, Look, there is no weirder way to watch the Singleton Shaft than having watched the first three Shafts yes. in like yeah. two days, which oh is my God. because that you are like, wow, this is, and it's just a whole other thing. Like, this yeah. is just not Barely Shaft connected. at all. Like thematically spiritually and politically just unaligned with the original shaft in so many ways that <laughs> right. I, I imagine gordon parks watching and just being like i'm so fucking upset <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i am because he's in it too yeah. so he must have like he probably went to the premiere or whatever yeah was he like yeah i loved when he said giuliani time like oh I, my look, we'll talk god well, well I, I just imagine he's like i don't have any control over this it's gonna get made whether or not i am involved right, sure. so let me yeah i'll be in it that's I mean, the other weird thing I, I just always think is such an interesting stat is Gordon Parks Jr. directs Superfly the following year. Really? Yeah. His son yeah. directed Superfly, which then becomes the template for, I think, what most people think of for black exploitation movies. And like Shaft. Right. Like Shaft and Sweetback combine to equal Superfly, which then becomes the movie that everyone else is copying. I feel like the cultural uh, sort of like understanding of Shaft for right now feels so much more like Superfly. I feel like a lot of people are like, uh, Shaft is a guy who smacks around his women. It's like, no, he doesn't. Right. <laughs> and like dresses like, you know, crazy and has like wacky outfits. It's like, no, J- Shaft just like wears turtlenecks and goes to the bar. Yeah, cool. He's so chill. Yeah. And when he has sex with someone, it's chill because right. everything he does is chill. He's a chill guy. If he walks into like Fifth Avenue, cars slow down because he's walking. 
So relax. He doesn't yell at the cars. They just slow down around him. That's the weirdest thing about the whole Shaft legacy, which I've been trying to build up to, is it feels like Shaft 2019, but in particular Shaft 2000, which is what we're ostensibly talking about today, Mm -hmm. are movies that are like sequels to the cultural reputation of Shaft more than actual Shaft. Because what Shaft is has become sort of so abstract over decades where you're like, this first movie is this movie where the the combination of the right director casting like a great Discovery movie star and then getting the coolest person to do the soundtrack turns it into something different than what it is on paper, right? right? But it is somewhat alarming watching the original Shaft and being like, oh, this is in its very nature a pretty straightforward crime movie it is not as flashy as in your mind you think it is because of what shaft has come to represent i think it's because this movie is all it created a vibe it didn't sort of like coast on a vibe it starts the black exploitation genre it's has like a soundtrack a look and just a marketing sort of thing that you feel like is so iconic now but back then it's just sort of like they just we just created it out of nothing and it's wild to think of a movie being so like based on nothing that even though it's like it's an adaptation of this book but it's also just like everything about it that stands out is so original that it just feels like you don't have an idea of you think of shaft and you're not thinking of a shaft like shaft is kind of like this plus this you're like shaft is shaft and so that just gets perverted in your mind as to like well now what i remember of shaft because it's just it's like seeing an original painting for the first time and then trying to describe the painting without comparing it to anything else you just kind of go like uh i'm gonna make up what i kind of think i have to describe it as Right. And uh, David, sorry. No, I just remember the trailer for Shaft 2000 dropping. And he says, it's my duty to please that booty and things like that. And I, as a teenager, I was like, yes, this is Shaft's energy. Right? I haven't yeah. seen Shaft, but Same. I assume he's just someone who talks in classic Shaft. Like I'm fucking 10 years old, 11 years old. And I was like, that's the Shaft I know and love. And my dad was like, you haven't seen Shaft. You've seen like, like fucking like Maniacs parody Shaft. And like, I look, I think there's things that I what I would, but like 70s Shaft, yes, Isaac Hayes does sing a whole song about how cool he is. That won the Oscar. It, that won an Oscar and it's an Deserved iconic it. performance at the Academy Awards yeah. and it's deserved. But like, I feel like if John Shaft saw Isaac Hayes do that number, he'd be like, yeah, that's cool. Like, he would not have a big reaction to it. He might be a little embarrassed. Yeah, he'd just be like, right on. Yeah, I think he'd be like, I don't need all that flash. Let's yeah, take right. it easy. Yeah. That's, it's like Richard Roundtree is just has such a casual command of the screen. That is the thing that makes him so cool. And he also yeah. has the command anytime he walks into a room, but he's not overzealous in any way. Now, and, and Demi sort of, as you were saying, like everything that made Shaft so kind of culturally impactful feels like it happened organically, right? Like it was all these different things developing at different ways that all came together and like made this big splash. But what we think of as Shaft was sort of codified by everyone imitating Shaft. And even to a a degree also more the Shaft sequels than actual Shaft. And it's like, I think there was... The Shaft sequels feel a little burdened by, like, are we making a second Shaft movie or are we making what now Shaft feels like it needs to respond to? Right. Are we adapting a meme? Right. Right, right. Especially, right, the Roundtree sequels, they're more James Bondy. They have more sex. They have more montage. They have more, like, costume changes and stuff. Like, they're trying to be more what you're talking about. 
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. The round, look, the, let's talk about John Singleton's chef. Okay, we gotta, so we, let's, the, you know. this, is, this is the line I'm drawing. So Singleton, I was reading a lot of articles from when this movie was getting announced, when it was being developed, when it was coming out. There was like so much press hullabaloo around this movie. I think because uh, uh, Singleton was seen as sort of like the golden child who had sort of lost his way. Is this his chance to like reclaim the culture? And this is really like Samuel Jackson's first time being the lead of a big studio movie after being like such a fucking dependable player for the nineties. Right. Yeah. Like just essentially owning the nineties. He like when he's a lead before then it's like the negotiator or sphere or the long kiss good night or what he, you know, he's a dual lead with someone else like yeah. die hard with a vengeance. Yeah. You know, Pulp fiction. Yeah. Like rules of engagement. That's not, I'm like looking through his, obviously he's, sort of the secret he's like presented kind of as the lead of deep blue sea but obviously he's not uh because he gets eaten by a shark spoiler alert for deep blue sea um yeah that's it you know he's the lead of jackie brown that's an ensemble movie yes. uh, yeah he really hasn't had a samuel jackson is title yeah. movie right so yeah. i think there was that feeling of it being overdue and singleton talked about that he felt like this movie was like his destiny that he saw the first shaft when he was three years old his father who was a little bit of a fabulist you know is obviously the character that uh uh inspire is the guy who inspired the um Lawrence Fishburne character in uh boys in the hood, in the hood. his father used to claim that shaft was based on him and he was like, you were a detective? And he was like, no, but I lived in New York City and I walked around cool. I think someone must have seen me. That tracks. Hard to dispute. Yeah. <laughs> Ernest Tidyman's like at his desk, like hammering on a typewriter. He sees yeah. him walking around. He's like, oh, that guy's walking pretty cool. I'm going to make him white in this book, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to make the second book be called Shaft Among the Jews, which is <laughs> truly the That's title incredible. of the second Shaft book. Why did they adapt that, uh, adapt that one? <laughs> they're going to. They're, no, they're yeah. going to. They're, they're, they're going to work on that one. I, 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 I would love for Kenya Bears to be in charge of that one. Yeah. yeah. That, that would be good. He's like, all right. Um, but, but yes, so uh, uh, Singleton was always like, I love Shaft. Shaft was like, James Bond for me, right? That's the thing. That's the key to this movie, I think, is that you have 
someone who has a very young child imprints upon this character and is like, this is our superhero. And to some degree, the film we end up seeing decades later is him making his like little boy fan fiction of Shaft, right? Here's the other thing, though, that I feel like has to be, this is, there's not much mentioned, but Singleton's other passion project, he gets attached to Shaft in 96, is a Luke Cage movie. And this is kind of a Luke Cage movie. Yes, like, that's the other thing. You know, that like kind of the, like super guy in Harlem busting things up. Like right. it's, and I feel like he's just sort of got that too. He just wants to make kind of like this like larger than life movie. He wants to make his black superhero movie. And like he, for a period of time was trying to do Black Panther. He wanted to do it with Wesley Snipes. I need to find the interview where Wesley Snipes talks about it. It sounds terrible. Like, Wesley Snipes <laughs> was like, I love John Singleton, but that was a really, really fucking bad pitch. I have, I'll, I'll give you, let me tell you what Wesley Snipes yeah. said the pitch was. Yeah. He was like, I pitch classic Black Panther, uh, secret world in Africa, technically advanced society, yada, yada, yada. And John is like, no. No, I wanted to have the spirit of the Black Panther and he's going to get his son to join the Black Panthers and they have like political strife and I want to like ha- make it be all about the civil rights movement. Mm. And Wesley Snipes was like, have you read the comic? I don't think any of that's in there. Like, I think you're just talking about a different movie. Like, yeah. that's that's the most he described it as, basically. Thank God I love John, but I'm so glad we didn't go down that road. Uh, the, the line here that's incredible is he and his son have a problem and they have some strife because he's trying to be politically correct and his son wants to be a knucklehead. Mm. Oh, H- hate so when that happens. That pitch is basically uh, Shaft 2019. <laughs> yes. It is. Yes. Oh, yeah, no. That's what's fascinating about it. Uh, b- but, but, uh, yes, Luke Cage was a much better fit for him. He wanted to do it for a long time. Even through like the mid-2000s, post-X-Men and Spider-Man, he for a long time was saying that he was going to do it with Tyrese because Tyrese became his guy. Um, but it never materialized. This feels like absolutely correct, the culmination of those two desires, right? To make the movie that he imagined in his head as a little boy, reading uh, Luke Cage comics, watching Shaft, movies uh he wants to do it with don Cheadle. that's his big thing when he signs mm. on to do the project he's talking the trades i love don Cheadle. i think he's the next big movie star and his rep at this time is traffic or is or no pre-traffic the same year okay traffic's the same year i mean his so rep- who is don Cheadle to the world at this point that he's like i love this guy he's like a great devil in character the blue dress actor. right okay. right yeah out of right. sight you know like he's 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 coming along he's in rosewood obviously right that's the thing he's like he's in boogie nights like right. good directors have recognized that he's an amazing character actor devil in the blue dress was the thing where people thought he was going to get an oscar nomination he didn't but he was certainly not being positioned as a leading man. Which is wild because I feel like this movie doesn't exist without Samuel L. Jackson doing Pulp Fiction. Yes. I feel like the cultural understanding of Shaft is so much of what he's doing in that movie with all the like, do you speak it, motherfucker? And then like, I imagine people seeing that and being like, oh my God, Shaft. It's a two-pronged thing. It's literally, it's that. It's that Sam Jackson was like the right star to conceptually reboot this with, where the studio was going to sign off on it. And two, Jackie Brown. Weirdly, I was just reading all these interviews where they talked about the fact that he had wanted to do it, that no one had any interest. He was never actively developing it, but he always was like, I would love to do a modern shaft. Uh, And then... Scott Rudin at Paramount at that point in time. I don't know why Paramount has the rights to Shaft because the Shaft rights are confusing. I've got it for you right here. Ooh, somebody did a Google. 
All right. So this movie was in MGM's. It was MGM's, and then they sell it to Paramount. Uh-huh. Singleton said he made them sell it to Paramount because MGM wouldn't give him a big budget. They thought it would just be a quote-unquote black movie. Like he 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 basically curses out MGM, and so MGM kicks the rights to Paramount's to Paramount. When that's when Scott Rudin comes aboard. Uh, in 1997, and let's say Scott Rudin, a uh, uh, notorious monster, at that point in time is just kind of the biggest producer at the overall deal at Paramount. So, like any top priority movie at Paramount, he's going to put his claws into, which means this was really seen as potential for a huge franchise for them. Uh, yeah, and I think like that, you know, the, initially they the, he held auditions at the Apollo Theater for like he wanted an unknown at some point. Like there was some big event he did where he's like, I'm going to cast the new shaft. But then Sam Jackson comes aboard. And like that feels like the studio being like, well, wait a second. No, like let's like make this a big movie. The uh, the other thing I read, uh, there's a a Shane Salerno uh, who co-wrote the original script for this. The guy who did Armageddon. And is now writing like Avatar 5, The Seed Bearer or whichever one. Um, But he wrote a, a long excuse me, eulogy for Singleton when he passed away a couple of years ago. He said that at one point Singleton was really into the idea of it being Will Smith and Lauren Hill. Right. He definitely wanted Lauren Hill to play Shaft's like sister. I think he wanted Lauren Hill to play the Vanessa Williams character. But this is the Ooh. other thing. His original pitch was he very much wanted to be the two generations of Shaft. He wanted the whole movie to be the two of them together so i think he wanted a younger shaft originally he wanted someone in the will smith don Cheadle age range and rudin and paramount were like we don't want the fucking old guy shaft make that a cameo you can sprinkle him in there a little bit let's make this a vehicle for someone to be a fucking movie star and sam jackson obviously has just had this dominant 90s um, but the other thing is that, like, even though Jackie Brown underperformed, it sort of launched a uh, a black exploitation sort of like uh, reclamation project, especially with like Pam Grier being put back in movies again. Yeah. Um, and just the vibe, even though that movie is not ostensibly a black exploitation pastiche fully, that then they were like, oh, you could do like Shaft, but make it like Jackie Brown. Well, if you're gonna do that, just get. Get the Tarantino guy. Get Sam Jackson. Absolutely. Right. I, I, the other, yes, yes. That, I mean, they also had like a Cleopatra Jones remake set up. They had a Superfly remake set up. They never happened. I know they eventually did Superfly like a couple of years ago, but like, yeah. I think Hollywood at the time was like, yeah, let's let's do remakes of all this stuff. And also the you know the nineties were obviously things run on this 20-year cycle. The 90s were when there was this big 70s nostalgia wave and you get things like the Brady Bunch movie and you start getting like 70s TV show adaptations and all that sort of shit. Which is so strange because it's them trying to capitalize on the success of these things that were all based so much on vibe and then being yes. like, well, let's get rid of the vibe. Right. It just, it just, I don't know. They sort of like make a new metal shaft and I'm just like, I don't know... What people are supposed to think of this? I mean, there's there's a really irascible Singleton piece. I need to figure out which one it is. I have it somewhere in my tabs here, but where he's talking about like all the rumors that had spread around the movie at this point, and the fact that they only let him like the fact this movie is only getting greenlit because of the Tarantino like buzz, and he mm. was like. They kept on telling me to do the Tarantino thing. And I'm like, that motherfucker writes movies from outside the fishbowl. I'm in the fishbowl. And yet, and yet, I feel like this movie, 
if you did not tell me John Singleton wrote this, I or wrote, I guess, and directed, uh, there's no way I would have guessed it. For, because I guess my cultural understanding of John Singleton is someone who is so much more, uh, just has things to say about the way the, the interplay between black people and the police in this movie feels like it fumbles it in a, a way that I'm just like, no, this was a movie made by a white guy, which is awful to say because he's not a white guy. But I'm just like, the, I think the difference between what is Luke Cage would have been and what this is, is the police aspect of it. And I think that's yeah. where it, it becomes a thing where I'm just like, what is Shaft doing? Making him a cop is a strange decision. And obviously he retires from the police like halfway through the movie. Twice. And by the yeah, right. so many he times, does, and he he does throw his badge at a judge, but right. like he he retires from the police in the same way that the jerk says he only needs one more object before he can leave. <laughs> but like by the end of the movie, he's kind of Shaft, like the, the yeah. Shaft we know and love, right? He's going to be a private dick. It's a yeah. weird origin story for a fifty-five-year-old man, <laughs> and right. it's like. It's he retires, but still keeps a fondness for the police and like their tactics and has like a right like a, they a rapport with like the good cop with Vanessa and has right. this one. Right. He has this one line where he, uh, he says like one more for the road in reference to him using like extrajudicial brutality yes! to get uh, information. I'm like, so you're admitting that cops do this, but you're doing it in a way where it's like, and that's fine. I. Uh, I, I think I like this movie a lot more than you guys do, although oh. I obviously acknowledge that it's deeply flawed i'm mixed on this movie I, it's very watchable i think it's really really fucking watchable and there are things i find very interesting in it but that is the fundamental issue of the movie is shaft's relationship to these institutions yes which it feels like goes against everything that shaft was originally about was like he's kind of this guy who's stuck in between these two worlds yes and there's oh i i I okay let me just plainly say I, I I think it's extremely watchable but I also I think the like themes and whatnot in this movie do make it like my first response upon finishing it was I think this movie is evil <laughs> but like mostly because like in the original Shaft there is a, an entire scene about how Shaft would rather work with drug dealers than with the police because they are both treated in the same way and he's like no I am not he's like I like he has like a sort of uh, rapport with a guy on the police force but he's like I do not help you I do not work with you you guys can go and fuck yourselves uh, and in this one uh, he is not only a cop that retires multiple times but when he does retire he beats up a black drug dealer on the street for like no reason kind of and then there's a, a cop driving by that as this is happening and he sort of like nods to them as like hey this is the job and the cop nods back and you're just sort of like what Okay, yeah, so this yes, is going to be subversive. They're going to comment on this. It's like, no, he's using police tactics, and it's like pro-brutality in a way that I'm just like, this isn't Shaft. That scene is so bizarre because Singleton makes such a moment out of it. He goes yes. to these extreme close-ups of their eyes as they're giving the nod to each other. Right, and it's yeah. like, he clearly does want to call out the weird interplay of this moment, but he doesn't really want to dig into it. That Shaft is essentially weaponizing the systemic racism of the institution to get away with beating the shit out of a suspect yes by getting the white cops to approve because they're like well we feel the same way and he pretty much only brutalizes black men in this yes movie. yes so it's just like well, what and christian bale what's and christian bale yes although 
that feels like it's like I don't know. He slaps Christian Bale, and then Christian Bale's fine for most of the movie, and then it's like drug dealers and just like fucking black henchmen and all these things where it's like yep. the, the the amount of black death in this movie that is caused directly by Shaft is psychotic. It, it is wild how violent he yes. is as a character. Look, all the shafts have gunplay. Like they all, it's like because I was watching this movie and I was like, God, they're really like shooting the shit out of each other in this movie. There's lots of like, you know, squibby, bloody death in this movie. And I was like, I had just watched the other shafts. They do always shoot each other. It's not like it's not there, but for some reason, they just feel a lot less intense or whatever a lot less visceral i think it's because in the originals it's mostly defensive and when it like goes wrong they have a moment where he sort of is like oh my god all of the damage that's been done to this community and like the score gets solemn and whatnot and this one it's none of that it's sort of like uh, i did what i had to uh and then they move on they're just like we don't have time for and also that it's all done with this fucking kind of like wink and a smile like 90s action hero quippy one-liner kind of like irony and distance you know that's definitely part of it just the general 90s action hero thing of like shoot first ask question like that is you know obviously just like a prevailing mood but it's also this like giuliani era kind of like well we have to clean up the streets somehow attitude that is like boiling away it, yeah it's a weird it's a weird thing this movie like you said griffin there's this singleton script which i think he wrote with uh salerno he brings on salerno who at that point is like a big spec script guy but also had spent time like in the nypd blue room was known as being like a yeah. good crime writer so he plucks him he's 24 and says like i want a white co-writer i want to be able to get some different perspectives on this they give the script to rudin rudin says this is a fucking mess i'm bringing in richard price to rewrite this right because like this their script i think is more as you say the generational shaft like whatever crime movie the family two shafts yeah and and richard price who is uh you know obviously a celebrated uh, crime novelist and he wrote Clockers which had just been turned into a hit movie or whatever but he's a white guy uh, you know gets brought in and uh, the, Singleton hates Richard Price uh, they did not get along and, and Sam and Jackson, Jackson hates, hates him too yeah. there's mm. this weird thing where it was like Jackson and Singleton weren't getting along neither guy was getting along with Rudin and neither guy liked the Prince script yes like they were unified and having the same enemies but also were fighting with each other Jackson and Singleton Yes, uh, basically, you know, Singleton's like, he, Price knows all the cop stuff and he would write that in fine, but he doesn't get Shaft. He doesn't get like the attitude. He doesn't get the flavor. Like he wasn't interested in like spicing the movie up or whatever. And so I think Sam Jackson and Singleton just come up with a lot of like riffs, which you can feel in the movie. Like there are just times where Jackson's like, I'm going to do a line. Like, the famous instance though, but this is what I was reading is that like Jackson hated all of that shit that he didn't like Shaft being so quippy. So like price hmm. had taken all of that out of the script. Right. And gave it like sturdy bones, but then the character was gone and then Singleton would overcompensate. And then, Jackson would go, that's corny. I'm going to look stupid saying that. So like the key example of that is the bar scene after the surprise party when he's talking to the bartender. I believe how Price had written it. Yes. From, you know, The Wire and many other. She's great. She she hits on him. And in the script, the Price draft, Shaft goes, "Eh, I'm tired. I have work in the morning and walks out of the bar. And Singleton throws a fit, and he's like, Shaft would fuck her. Shaft will fuck everybody. You can't have him not fuck her. Shaft is never too tired to fuck. 
and then which is he, not true. Which in, is not true. In Shaft's big score, there there's a great scene where uh, someone's just like, "I get off at four and he's like tr- just trying to get information, and she's like upset that he's like, "I thought your attention was on me." He's like, "I'm doing an investigation, not right now." <laughs> but this, <laughs> d- like, doesn't that feel like Singleton seeing this movie when he is single digits and Shaft sleeps with two different women in the first movie, and it's like, "Oh my god." Two, like, two awesome. sex scenes? Shaft yeah. fucks everybody. To be fair, he is described as a sex machine. He okay? is described as a sex machine. That's yeah. fair. So, you know, a machine. He's literally a machine. There is, tr- there's like a, a, a weird over-sexualization to the character of Shaft that is like clear, but it, it, I just think, yeah, he adapted it in a way that uh, makes it feel wrong. But the thing I read is that, so like, Jackson on the day is like, I'm not coming out of this trailer. I'm not shooting this scene. The The way Price has written it is dumb. It's like lame. And then Singleton comes to his trailer to try to appease him. And he's like, don't worry. I fixed it. I rewrote the scene. Here it is for you. It's my duty to please that booty. And and Jackson's like, that's also wrong. And he didn't want to leave his trailer. And he didn't want to say that line either. Like, Jackson was trying to find some middle ground between the two. And it, by all accounts, it was like they had to drag him out to say that line. Yeah. He was so embarrassed. He hated that it was the trailer line. He still winces. I read some interview with him after Singleton's death where the, the interviewer like said like that's a cool line he's like really i'm on (laughs) his side i think it it is such a tonal like it's a scene that feels like you should cut it out yes they were just like well shaft is horny we need him to be horny him flirting with the bartender is just fine him saying that it's like i i want her to like turn to the camera and be like wait is there are you being filmed right now like right why did you just say that it's like did you write that did you were you writing that in that other room before you came here right he pretty much like wiggles his eyebrows at the camera like it's (laughs) i mean here's the thing i've got we like there's all these quotes like it really it boils down to John Singleton, Scott Rudin, Samuel Jackson, Jackson, Richard Price all had tension with each other in various directions. You have a lot of people with, you know, like sort of input on this movie who have a lot of influence who are all disagreeing with each other. Mm-hmm. Post-production was a nightmare, apparently, like because Rudin is like breathing down people's necks. Um Richard, I've, here's the Richard Roundtree's quote. I will say we were just defending that Shaft is not that horny, and Richard Roundtree told the National Post uh, he doesn't have any sex. <laughs> like he, he was he was mad that there wasn't more sex. Oh my god! Um, it like, is wild that the opening credit sequence is just this James okay. Bond style, but it's not Samuel Jackson. Very odd. What? Okay, who is? What the fuck is that? It, it it was it's so weird they added it like months later and he was off shooting one of 18 movies sam jackson Good probably Lord. shot that year so it's just a woman <laughs> and some body double who you can tell is not samuel jackson yes so you're watching it and you're like is this supposed to be shaft or am i just watching two strangers have sex let's get into the movie because the credits like the opening credits to the original shaft are a top 10 of all time yes. opening sequence Icon. in a film I like the uh, I actually like both of the Roundtree sequels. Neither of them have the Isaac Hayes song as the opening. And the you big miss score it. one is very good, though. The song on the yes. big score. It, uh, the big score music is so cool. So yes, good. and the song is fun. But 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 let's also acknowledge once again, like talking about how 
kind of skewed everyone's memory of the original Shaft is, or just from osmosis what they think it is, the awesome opening credit sequence of the original Shaft is that super fucking cool logo, and then just shots of him walking down a real he's, New he's York City around. street. There's, there's no crazy stylized, you know, like... That, that's the thing. And like, I don't know who made the decision on these opening credits, but... They're like, okay, the the theme song is back, and you're like, oh yeah, cool. And they're like, money Great. in the bank, so, right? So how about like a sex montage over police siren lights? Right. And I'm like, well, Mm-mm. why would that? What the, I don't know. It, does he is he in the car? Why? <laughs> just right off the bat, being like, that's not. Yeah. Yeah. Just it feels like that was added because of the whole like this. There's not enough sex in this thing yes. in this movie, but it it is. It immediately sets a tone of like, okay, this is going to be a sexy movie. And then, yeah, the first scene, you're like, what the fuck? Why would you do these back to back? And then, right. the fr- And then the first scene is this sequence that is kind of a fun, you know, opening to a mystery, you know, to a cop movie, right? Like, right. it's like, okay, there's been this assault. Mekhi Pfeiffer is, is lying there dead. Christian Bale, like, what happened here? Tony Collette is the waitress. Like, by the way, my first thought was, did he literally call Mackay Pfeiffer and ask him to show up and just lie on the street? Like, before they cut to the flashback, I was like, right. that's a big that, favor to cash in. I was like, oh, he must have not been anyone at this point, but... No, but he he's, he would been in Clockers. He'd been in, yeah. like, Soul Food. He'd been in, uh, what's it called? He's in I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. Yes. Mm. Right? He's in the second one. Um, You know, like, but I... I am immediately like, why is Shaft here? Like, Shaft's not a murder, you know, a homicide detective. Right. Like, no. this is the fir- Shaft first sign that they might have miscalculated this movie a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of signs in that scene where I'm like, oh, I think th- things are off here. Like, there's a moment where he looks at Tony Collette and I'm just like, oh no, is Shaft going to fuck Tony Collette? Is that why <laughs> she's here? But I will say this, like, this is what I do like about this movie. I do like the central mystery of this film. And especially, like, in relation to watching the other Shaft movies and a lot of movies of this ilk, you know, even in all three eras we're talking about here, right? Like, the the 2010s, the 2000s, the 70s, where it's like the kind of overcomplicated web of figuring out how to follow the chain and who's actually at the top and what's the thing they're actually trying to do. I like that it's a very kind of like human crime at the center of it. And the thing he's trying to solve is like systemic rot. You know, I do like that. I like that there's not a mystery for him to untangle as much as there is sort of like him trying to figure out how to write this situation. We I know who did it. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Dan. I was going to say, I wish that there was more of a mystery because I think the way that he, they handle the rot isn't very good. And it feels like it, it's sort of, I don't know, they have, they have several moments where they sort of like show, okay, these cops are racist. And then they have the moment where like the, the uh, case sort of it gets fucked and Christian Bale is let go and he's sort of like, he throws his badge into the wall. But from then, the way that they pre- proceed makes it seem like his problem is not with policing or, or as much as it is just like with the courts. And yeah. by the end of it, you feel like even though he's still not a cop, he's like very much in support of what the cops do. And it's just sort of like, it, it's very few bad apples and it doesn't sort of get to the heart of the idea of police handling of racism or why. He, like, I think just him leaving uh, the police system is more about him just leaving the justice system. And I, if, it, if there was a way that he could still be a cop and not have to go to court, 
he would, which is his way of just being like, I, I would love to just kill the bad guys. And I'm like, that's not Shaft. That's not what you're doing. No, this this weird sort of like vigilante aspect to him, when, when he has the badge, it all just starts feeling really uncomfortable in terms of abuse of power, you know? Yeah. And like, David, you were pointing out just how much gun shit there is in the original Shaft movies, too. It's like, it's not like these are recent issues, right? It's not like these are things that just have sprung up overnight, but... Uh, you know, especially at the time we're recording this, these things are being discussed a lot on a daily basis. As more and more of the country gets vaccinated, suddenly there are once again mass shootings every single day. And we just, uh, you know, the the Derek Chauvin trial, like just, uh, you know, he, he was found guilty just last week. Uh, I do also just find the more I'm thinking about these things, the older I get, I have very much hit a point where I just am getting more and more uncomfortable with this kind of like just kind of extreme gun violence and extreme let the cops do whatever the fuck they want sort of movie making even especially when it's framed as like, oh, but he's cool. Yes. Framing uh, this guy as a cool cop who's real. The reason he stops becoming a cop is not because he disagrees with the police system as much as it's just like he's upset that the courts uh, presided on this case wrong. Because then I'm like, well, then that's not you being that's still sort of an abuse of power of you being like, I like the justice system only insofar as. I can use it. So, like, when I can go out to the right. streets and beat up a guy and say shit like, lawyers are for punetas, or, like, abusing his power to punish criminals as he sees fit, I'm like, then you aren't, like, you're, you, like, that's the thing that I'm like, okay, you're dig into that. kind of the problem. Yeah. Yes. Or, or you're parallel to the issues. I also feel like you're right that it's weird that the ire of this movie is like, well, this kid's so rich and his dad's so well-connected that they're going to be able to hire good lawyers and get him off. And also the like, well, they're bad apples everywhere. But almost every cop he deals with is a bad apple. He is also a bad apple. Yes, he's also a bad apple, and he doesn't really recognize the rot of the system itself. He's like, well, so many individual bad actors here. The main thing that Christian Bale has against it to get off is that Shaft punches him in the face at the crime scene, which is not police procedure. Not that I am a defender of all forms, but like he literally brutalizes him at the crime scene. This is is a little bit on you, John Shaft. I I really didn't like that moment because I was just like, that is so like. That's so obviously the thing that they should dig into and, like, also just immediately makes you go, like, well, uh, I guess he, Bale does sort of have a defense in that. And, like, just, I think even just using it as, like, the way that uh, the case goes when, like, a black cop punches a white guy versus a a, a cop at all punching a black person and just, like, how, just, there's so many different things in this movie where it's, like, if they had dug into that, that would be interesting. There's one line where a cop says something to Shaft, like, how about you pick a color, black or blue? And I was, like, okay, let's follow that, let's follow that. And it was just, like, someone wrote a fun line and then we're, like, all right, now move on. Right, he he has a quippy comeback. He says, how about I make you both? Like, it just becomes another way for him to threaten someone and show how powerful he is i i i do think like i god i would love to read what the original salerno singleton draft is because i wonder if there was an angrier more coherent more political movie here that rudin was just like make this a summer blockbuster just make about a badass right I mean, but the other problem, and I think this was a, is that the there was some decision. I've read some interview with Jeffrey Wright, who is in this film playing a character called Peoples Hernandez, uh-huh. and we will we will talk about it. Where they've kind of beefed up Jeffrey Wright and beefed down Christian Bale because yes. they were like Bale is not compelling in this because he 
he's guilty from frame one and he's just a jerk. So let's have the plot be like that he meets this, you know, local drug dealer and that hires him to kill a witness and like and then we're immediately like that like then bail is just a non-presence in the story and it becomes shaft you know being about shaft invading washington heights to kill a dominican drug lord like that's yeah what the movie is 90 percent about yeah again thematically literally the opposite of a crucial scene in the original yes he's like i do not work with cops i will work with drug dealers instead so just i was like what what is this plot what is this plot? <laughs> and like Jeffrey Wright's being told like just like as big as possible, yeah. but like fill the room so we know you're bad. I also, right. And, I mean, as you said, I think they cut down bail and they shot more stuff with Wright. Apparently yes. Wright just like popped in the test screenings and they were like, this is the character that everyone thinks is fun. As much of a focus on this guy as possible. Which I get. Yeah, because he's like entertaining. I mean, yeah. this is a classic Jeffrey Wright performance in that you're like too much, but then you're also kind of like, eh, I mean, it's kind of it's it's pretty watchable. Like I love right. Jeffrey Wright. He's a great actor. He is often way too much paprika on the sandwich, and it's no problem. It's I think like, I said okay. in some previous episode that he is the one actor where it's like I enjoy eating his sandwich over paprika. Like it's part yeah. of the spice for him. He's able to give naturalistic performances, but. He he tends to go too hard, and that's a little bit of the fun with him. You know, I mean, him in Source Code, the one that Paul of Tompkins makes fun, you know, where he's, right. like, got, you know, the crutches and the big hair and, and the, the pipe. Like, oh, like, the Source Code, you know. Like, right, just not enough business. Bring in more business. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I love I love it when he does. And then even in Westworld, where he's playing a robot who is quiet you're yeah. kind of like anytime he's on screen you're like this is this is way over the top jeffrey yeah and he's not even saying anything he's just furrowing his brow and mumbling here's another thing with jeffrey Wright. right he makes mumbling feel like overacting he also <laughs> stop yelling jeffrey he's also a guy and i want to make it clear i love him he's one of my favorite character actors but he's a guy where it feels like anytime he affects any sort of voice for a character which is almost always he he kind of wants to show the work like it mm -hmm. never is like oh look how well he disappeared into this character like even westward where he's like my guy's kind of gravelly he's sort of it has the same amount of effort as christian bale doing a batman voice yeah well, it's also crazy that this is christian bale like right before um american psycho or whatever, right like or yes. right around the same they're the like, same year aren't they <laughs> I it's think wild. American Psycho yes, comes year, out this spring. And like, yeah. these are arguably the two performances that get him Batman. Like, that's the most insane thing is he has American Psycho and Shaft this year. And then he becomes the Internet's fan casting choice for Batman because they're like, look, he plays such a good Bruce Wayne. It's like, what are you revealing about yourself that you <laughs> the guy? Who's this guy's crazy like, like psychos, insincere, <laughs> right. like generational wealth brat psychos. To be your Batman. They just see that he's, he can be rich and crazy. And yeah, they're like, oh, his hair slicked back as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also, like, looked around because I'm like, so Jeffrey Wright's just, like, doing his thing. He's playing a, a Dominican guy. He's doing an accent. I Googled, like, to find, like, so what's up with that? Like Azamo. Uh, yeah, well, obviously the role was written for John Leguizamo, and he was cast, ah. and he left, I think, for Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge ran uh, over schedule, yeah. And obviously, John Leguizamo would be a delight in this role. John Leguizamo has never not, you know, enjoyed hamming it up. Like, I'm sure yeah. he would be just what the film is looking for. But 
I like found some interview with Jeffrey Wright where he's like, yeah, I, I like just knew a guy who sounded like that. And that's what I was doing. Oh. And I was like, okay, okay, Jeffrey. <laughs> that's, that's all I could find. I recently rewatched Game Night, and uh, Jeffrey Wright has a small role in that. And even in that, he's playing he's like very an, funny he's, in Game Night. He's so funny, but he's playing an actor who he's playing an actor, and so he overacts the scene. And then even when it drops down, he's sort of overacting in a, in a, like a different level, and you sort of get the tears of how his overacting works in his brain, which is like, all right, overact bad. Now overact the the Jeffrey Wright way, and it's so like interesting to but to see that. And then also that's watch another. Like this. Modern Jeffrey Wright, where he's doing the weird forced gravel voice. And yeah. I'm like, look, it's fun, but I wonder if you could just like maybe give your throat a break for one movie and just talk <laughs> like yourself. Because now every movie is like, listen, I want to tell you something. Like every performance, he's like doing this. I almost wonder if he was cast specifically to do that to a level. and Because it feels like him making fun of himself when he's just sort of like, listen up, man. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. And then he asked people like what their allergies are. I love. What yeah. did you have a nice time rewatching Game Night, Demi? I just yes. anytime I rewatch I, Game Night, I have a great time. I think it's fantastic. I think it holds it's up. It's the best. Uh, he's yes, so good in that. I was just thinking, even Rick and Morty, like they brought him in. He's right. the episode where they're fighting over the toilet, right? Where he keeps on yeah. using Rick's toilet and Rick's trying to get revenge on him. And the bit they're doing is sort of like when they cast for Herzog, where it's like cast someone with too much innate gravitas to talk about something really silly. And yes. even then he's like overplaying it. But but none of this is a criticism. I think he's always No. Good. I think he has such a strange career in which like if you say Jeffrey Wright immediately I think you think of certain roles that would be considered like uh, dramatic and strong and like important roles, but also he has a lot of silly things that he does in his career. Yeah. Where you're like he he's, he seems like he could be a goofball. Probably I also is. think this point in his career, like 2000 is when everyone was like, Jeffrey Wright might be one of the best actors of his generation. Like, I do he, feel right, like there was Don this. Basquiat, right, obviously. Right. And like, he's he's going to do Top Dog, Underdog on Broadway the following mm -hmm. year. Like, he's just sort of getting talked about as like, this might be like a real, real major guy. And then he didn't have that exact career that I think people were anticipating for him. Yeah. I wonder... I mean, with things like that, I always wonder how much of it is them wanting to specifically be a, a certain kind of actor. Because I feel like there are a lot of actors where people are like, they're going to blow up. And then it just feels like they really just want to do certain types of acting or like do character things or do things where it doesn't feel like they have to like carry a movie based on being someone who's so adjacent to themselves. Because I, I can see him being like, I'll do Basquiat where I can sort of change it up a bit, but I don't want to do a movie. Like, I wouldn't want to do, he's like, I wouldn't want to do Westworld full time or like a, a feature right well and ba basquiat was like his breakthrough and then yeah. he kind of mm -hmm. doesn't really play a leading man like ever again in that sort of like no i mean he played martin luther king in that tv movie boycott right. which was kind of a you know big deal tv movie or what you know but like but that was that and then like obviously he wins the emmy for his angels in america which is him just doing the role he did on broadway right. But he's amazing in that. I always contend if that had been theatrically released, he would have won the Oscar won. for that. Yeah, it's such a good role. I mean, and then, but then, like, at, in The Manchurian Candidate, when he shows up with the big beard mumbling, Just you're so like, oh, much. oh, this is like what he's going to do in Casino Royale. And. Right then on and like when he plays colin powell he doesn't have a beard but he's just like oh, i don't know if we should you know like you know that that's just that's what he's good the lead the movie he's a lead in is cadillac records and he's phenomenal oh, in that movie. yes he's oh, incredible cadillac records yeah that movie's uh, such a good great 
I think Beyonce is very good in that movie. Beyonce is yeah. amazing That's in that movie. Her one like transcendent acting performance where you're yeah. like, Beyonce should have been a movie star. Yeah, and it's weird because she's playing uh, like, what Etta James, right? Yeah, and it's like she's playing a singer. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna just see Beyonce. But there is a point where I just went, oh, oh, right, that's Beyonce, and it, she's yeah. just great. Yeah, uh, that she's movie is really good. A- Eamon really Walker's good fucking great in that movie. Most Def's great in that movie. Everyone's fucking good in that movie. Eamon Walker is incredible in that movie. So when he shows movie, up right? and he does the first song as Howlin' Wolf, and he's like freaking everyone out. It's the best. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I love just movie. electric shit. And that's like one of the best movies about like this sort of weird tension of white label uh, makers and black artists. Yeah. Like anyway, whatever. We're not talking about Cadillac Records. We're talking about Shaft. There's another crazy thing that I guess we should say. I, I, I'm sure this played some small role, is that Isaac Hayes had become a huge deal again because he was yeah. chef. Like, that yes. is kind of... He really... Because Isaac Hayes really had, like, 10-plus years doing nothing. Like, kind of right. just Post chilling Post Escape out. from New York, he's kind of... Yeah. And now he's like... Everyone loves Isaac Hayes again. Like, that must have been another reason a studio's like, yeah, we'll give you 50 million bucks to make a hard R Shaft remake... Or Shaft sequel, whatever. Shaft reboot. Yeah. With Sam Jackson that's, like, about him as a guy. Like... It'll have Isaac Hayes up at the top. Like, I'm sorry, I'm, I, I I just forgot about that. And I, I no, no. Shaft. Look, it's fine. You're just talking about Chef. I can dig it. All right. Uh, no, but <laughs> but I do think that's true, and I do think just like I remember there being a lot of Shaft parodies, especially things using the song ironically mm-hmm. around this time in the years leading up to it. Like, it felt like it had become a cultural meme to a degree that like two like 10 11 year old white boys like us david could see the trailer and be like oh yeah i know what this is i think my introduction to shaft was it being a runner on the fresh prince and me being like oh i get the idea of yes, yes. Is. right but but all that stuff is this weird abstraction of what shaft yes. actually is and this movie is reacting to that and also fulfilling john singleton's boyhood interpretation of right. what shaft is um but yes i do think this i i, I I understand what you're saying, Demi, that you wish there was more of a central mystery for him to solve. I guess what I want this movie to be in its best form is him figuring out how to navigate this fucked system without just barging into people's apartments and shooting them. Right. Yeah. Like, I do like that the movie kind of just lays all its cards out in this opening scene, right? You have this thing where you're like starting like deep in media res. Here's a guy lying on the ground. He walks in. Here's a bartender with blood. Here's this clear asshole who's guilty, right? And then you get these flashbacks. Like I do think the pacing of this is interesting. The structure of this opening is interesting with him casing it. And then how quickly he cannot control himself, punches bail, like gets himself on thin ice. There's something interesting of the setup to me of just like, the whole thing's laid out cleanly, and now he needs to figure out how to make sure justice is served. But the problem is that it doesn't feel like this becomes, look, he's a guy who's willing to break the rules for a greater good. It feels like it becomes, Shaft does whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah. And then he turns to the camera and winks and goes, I'm cool, right? Yeah, it feels very much like he's not trying to peacefully solve this or like, it's not like I, I don't want to see any more blood. It's him being like, don't worry, I got this. And like cocking a gun and being like, what are you going to do? It's like, I'm going to kill people. It's like, so not uh, a detective film. He's just, he's a, 
a revenger, yeah. basically. Right. He's like he's like Charles Bronson in Death Wish. Yeah. Uh, but also like all of the revenge is it's on a guy who's sort of adjacent to Christian Bale. Like it's not it's so like they bring in this secondary thing because it's so they have the the like the case the the main case, but then they bring in people on both sides to be like corrupt cops and like corrupt criminals and whatnot, just to sort of like uh, pad out the movie with people that Shaq, I keep, I almost call him Shaq, uh, that Shaft can just fight. And it's like, so it isn't even about the case at all. It's just about like, all right, now that Shaft has like a, a, a reason, let's give him people to like, let's give, let's put bodies in this movie that can act as like, villains and it's just like you just put basically put a superhero skin on top of this noir thing that you had right and once again rather than a movie that feels like it's designed to be like shaft fighting against institutional power it becomes uh, shaft uh uh fighting against inner city thugs yeah you know in a way that is not upsetting to white audiences that feels like it's very cognizant of trying to appease the weird sort of bloodlust that an audience would feel watching this movie if totally. you're trying to make it something that could cross over in a fucked, fucked way. Um, it, it's, I, I don't know. It's even like the Vanessa Williams character is bizarre to me because th- this is her period where she's actually like a movie star, right? Like Vanessa Williams, someone who had just been very famous for a long time, is Miss America, then is like stripped of her title because of scandal of her nude photos being sold to penthouse and published. Then she has this like second wave as like a pretty successful musician. And then like 1997, she does soul food. She you did, know, first she uh, does eraser. Does eraser. Don't forget eraser. Right. So she does like a racer 96 soul food 97. Like suddenly it's like, Oh wait, is Vanessa Williams a movie star? Now? Yeah. She's in hoodlum, uh, which the, the bill Duke movie she's in. Um, well, she plays the queen of trash in the adventures of Elmo and Grouchland. So great performance. Actually, actually great performance. Good movie. Put some respect on that. Uh, I like yeah. that movie. Um, but then post shaft she's, uh, I mean, what, what's she doing? She's, she's chilling. I don't know. She does a lot of TV movies. Like it, when she, when she's in Ugly Betty, it's sort of a comeback for her. She kind of disappears. and then right, she has Ugly Betty, and she does uh, Desperate Housewives, and it becomes like oh, now Vanessa Williams is playing this camp sort of ice queen character as her stock and trade. This is the end of her like sort of real movie star run, and it feels like when she's introduced in your movie, you're like oh, she just does have a real kind of steady presence and integrity to her. And it's interesting to present her as a counterpoint to him where it's like, this is a kind of like more by the book cop who also isn't square. As you said, Demi, she's sort of presented as being the only good cop in the entire movie, but then it doesn't ever feel like they ever have anything to do with her. She's just kind of there. This this is a sad character in a way, because right, she's around... She's sort of the second lead or whatever, but like she's second build. I couldn't tell she's you. She's got much a lot of screen time. She does yeah? She's just kind of there. I have a sneaking suspicion that they wanted some romantic thing between her and Shaft. That's what it feels like, sure. and then it sort of changed. And I don't because it just feels like she's there for no reason, but then also has yeah. certain scenes where, uh, yeah, she's supposed to be the anchor, like the good cop, and I, I'm just like I don't have any faith that they didn't 
put her in place as like the good black cop that can also be like and Shaft will fall in love with her or whatever. Right. It's weird that there's no interiority. It's weird that there are no like heart to heart scenes. Like I, I weirdly want this movie to have the dumb studio notes. Like there has to be a scene where her and Shaft bond and she talks about why she joined the force yeah. in the first place. You know, and what her trauma is that made her decide that she needed to try to maintain justice. There's the middle of this movie is a uh, uh, very messy and strange, like post him resigning from the force. And then when, when we're just in this sort of muddled kind of like it's also this movie is short. Like this movie is 90 minutes, nine, maybe 100 minutes. Like it's pretty fast. The weirdest stat in the world is that the Tim Story movie is the longest of the five shaft movies. <laughs> it feels it is the only one. <laughs> That tickles two hours. <laughs> Sounds mm. bad. I got to say. It's like, like 155 or something. Well, when yeah. you got three shots in a movie. That's true. Yeah, have, and, and also, wait, and wait, but also Regina Hall, right? Like, is, is Regina she? Hall yes, plays Regina Hall. the mom. Okay. She plays the mom, but she does not get into the action. It's a bummer because the poster very much makes you think that she's going to be the fourth shaft. And she is not. She shows up and says, like, I, I hate you. You're a bad dad. Yeah. Uh, no, but like, so in the middle of this movie, it's like, okay, here's like R- Ruben Santiago husband, uh, Hudson and Dan Hedaya as like crooked cops. Here's like Lee Turgeson who's in Oz at the time is like not a crooked cop but a racist but a good yeah. cop or something like that whatever that character but is. also not that good he couldn't blow that lock yeah he would have to wait for the guy to open the door and then they're like and then of course Buster Rhymes as like Shaft's like comical like sort of sort of sidekick tech guy is valid yeah, yeah. Like, right. What is like, and like I and the, and which is this is the time like I like, I just watched Halloween Resurrection, which Buster Rhymes is the lead of. I did not realize oh, yeah. he was the lead. I don't know if you guys have, mm. uh, and he he karate kicks, um, uh, Michael Mike Michael Myers and says like you know booyah motherfucker or whatever. Uh, Buster Rhymes is kind of everywhere. Let's also acknowledge that in 1998 he was the voice of the Reptar Mobile in Rugrats. That is true. Right. He was. He was working, I think, on a cartoon show uh, at the time. He was tr- Buster Rhymes, I think, was really like, yeah, he was working on a cartoon series with Missy Elliott at the time, which I guess never came to fruition. It's like he's he's just like I'm going to be everywhere. Like it's going to be Buster Rhymes all the time. And, uh, and and Singleton had already used him in Higher Learning, yeah. and this felt like him being like, I think maybe Buster Rhymes could be a movie star. I'm going to give him a real part. And they like set him up in this movie as if he's the fan favorite character. Right. Where's down to the like, fact ah! that he gets the last lines. Yeah. The, the end of the movie is just him ADRing a bunch of riffs. Yeah. And you're just like, I don't know. He's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like these scenes in the middle where like Shaft is dragging Tony Collette and one of her like big beefy Italian brothers or whatever to Buster Rhymes's house. And then there's like a scene where it's like, Oh, you live like this. And Buster Rhymes is like, don't worry about it. Like, you know, and he's like cleaning up his house. He must've tested. Well, yeah. <laughs> like it must've, t- right. People must've been like, Hey, like this is funny because like, this is a d- weird, complicated movie. That's mostly glancing a- off of things like shaft says, Giuliani time, which is what like you know cops had supposedly said before torturing someone in a famous like nineties crime case. Like, but then like it's just like you say, it's just a drop in. It's just like a weird joke. But once again, I would just want to repeat. He says it at the Lennox Lounge before walking into a surprise birthday party to Gordon Parks. Right? Is it Gordon Parks the one he says it's Giuliani time? No, he he says he says misremembering that he says it. 
after shooting the two crooked cops and then like putting like just like uh, fucking oh, right. cocking his gun again and yeah, going off to he says it when he's going to do some violence right does it doesn't he say something weird to Gordon Parks though i think he does he calls him Mr P uh, or Mr I know he calls him Mr P yeah i can't remember uh he does say something to him but i that the Lennox Lounge scene, which we already talked about, is another weird scene where it's like weirdly drawn out, like where it's like a surprise birthday, and he's I don't like there are scenes in here where I'm like strip this out and put more meat into the central thing. Yeah, I like yeah. the act of the fake out as like a, oh that's a fun way to do it, but I was also just like why? <laughs> What's the point of it? just a way to get the uncle cameo in there or dad cameo? I guess so. Uh, yeah, it's uncle dad. Odd. I mean, I was right. just because we brought it up. I was stunned by that Giuliani time moment. Just, I was like, well, that sounds awful. And then I looked it up being like, I'm sure people have written about this. And then I was like, oh, I didn't know that this is what they said while torturing a man. So it feels like uh, almost like actively endorsing police brutality in a way. Like it's sort of, it's a reference that I feel like they wanted people to cheer at. I mean, this is a thing I find kind of inherently thorny about this movie, right? And especially when you consider that, like, so much of the tension stemmed from, like, Richard Price and Rudin, who it felt like were trying to maintain the ability for this film to be as uh, mainstream as possible, right? Because it's like you are making a $50 million ostensible franchise movie that's going to be released in the middle of the summer, right? Like, this is a July release. This was June. set up to June? June. June. June 16th. June. I remembered yeah. it being July. I, I guess I was applying sort of uh, Sully goggles onto it, thinking they should have done in July. Thank you. But, um, but it feels like, you know, one of the many, many things that have uh, come out in all of the uh, uh, Justice League uh, bruja, right, is uh, that in executive uh, boardroom, Warner Brothers meetings after Snyder screened his original Snyder cut and saw how much Cyborg was positioned as the lead of the film and how much Cyborg was, like, tortured and not avuncular in the movie, that apparently the head of Warner Brothers said, this is disastrous, we can't have an angry black man at the center of our big blockbuster. Which I 100% believe they said in those words, then, right? Didn't they have like a dinner where they were like, if he doesn't say booyah, I mean like, what are we even yes. gonna do? Like, that's oh. millions in merchandise. Like they had like some awful presentation where they are like, he simply right. must say booyah. And their thing, I think they said to him was, can you play it less like Frankenstein and more like Quasimodo? And he's like, what's the difference? And they're like, well, Frankenstein's bummed out, but Quasimodo's got a good heart. Oh, I guess so. Quasimodo's pretty bummed out, isn't he? Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, but just... <laughs> Whatever, whatever. They literally (laughs) were like giving him notes like walk more like Quasimodo than Frankenstein, who's scary. All this shit, right? Super fucked up. But I do I do wonder if there was a calculation here on this movie where it's like you kind of need from the from the white executive standpoint and Rudin and everybody, if they're like, if Shaft acts like an abusive white cop. Does that make him more palatable to white audiences rather than being threatening? Because it is odd how often he veers into the worst behavior, that, like that mirrors specific incidents and stuff. But there yeah. are like stories about how mad the cops were that he said Giuliani time. It's such a 2000 is a crazy different time in terms yes. of like. And like and they were just like, how could you even bring that up? How could you even mention that? Like you know we you know don't even bring that up. 
it feels like a line that they write thinking, okay, well, people will recognize it as a reference and that's enough for it to be a joke. We don't have to talk about the meaning behind it. But for Shaft to be a right. cop who says Julie, it's Giuliani time feels like an inherent endorsement of that, even though he, it's just like he comes off bizarrely. Yeah. And I think in their best, like my best interpretation of it is it's him killing two cops who have been like brutalizing people and him saying it's Giuliani time almost as like a, oh, it's Giuliani time on you guys. But he also, he says it afterwards as he's loading a gun as if he's like, all right, now time to do some police brutality. And I'm just like, what a, what a huge misfire. Exactly. I think yeah. as you say, like, the, but that also the, the characters of these corrupt cops are bizarre where they're kind of chummy and they're kind of like, hey, what are you going to do? And then they're Dan like- Dan Hadaya is a crazy casting choice for this, by the way. I mean, this is another reason where I, why I'm just kind of like against better judgment a little bit in the tank for this movie. <laughs> is it's just like, A, it's nice to just watch like a big summer blockbuster movie that was squarely aimed at adults, yeah. right? This sort of like highbrow popcorn sort of shit, like trashy pulp, but also not meant for children. Totally. Uh, the the other part of that is this movie is just fucking stacked. It is with so character crazy actors. cast. I mean, like Elizabeth Banks. Did you spot her like as yes. one yeah. of the friends in in the the dinner scene? I think it's her first film performance. Yeah. Yes. And Andre Royo, the guy from uh, who plays Bubbles the in The Wire, was mm-hmm. a doorman at the Cheetah Club, and Singleton like came to the club, and Royo like parted the Red Sea for him, you know, and was like, "Yeah, hey, like let me get you around," and and then said like, "Hey, I want to be in Shaft," and Singleton was like, "You got it," and they that's no like the way. start of his career. It's wild, yeah. But then you have like you have Philip Bosco and like Daniel yeah, Van Bargen and Hideo right, these guys, Ruben Santiago Hudson. Who who then writes Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Right. Like, it, it's it's just a wild uh, grouping of people, but it's also just such a pleasure to watch a movie like that where you're just like, oh, every scene, someone's a ringer or someone who goes on to become a ringer, and it's just someone getting to have fun, like, not being burdened with having to carry expositional weight as much as being, like, flavor, you know? Um, but it, it is a film that feels like it's very much at odds with itself which makes sense when you hear how much everyone was fighting about what the movie should have been i think it's just a mess i just don't know what i'm supposed to take away from the ending where shaft does all this kills all these people kills lots and lots of people to get tony collette to safely you know safely to justice and meanwhile we've got you know christian bale gets like an ice pick through his hand just so like he can get hurt because like right. the whole point of the movie is that Shaft is working really hard to put Christian Bale in jail. Right. But nothing about the movie's tone suggests that they want it it wants Christian Bale to like get his head chopped off. Like, you know, this right. movie is lurid and this movie is like kind of angry and this movie is like take justice into your own hands, Shaft. And so at the end, we got this kind of like ironic twist of the 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 mom shoots him. Lynn Lynn Thigpen, okay, great actor. Y- yeah. Best known as the chief from Where the World is Carmen San Diego, uh, mm. especially at this period of time, is this sort of like supposed to be a kind of emotional linchpin of the movie where she is Mackay Pfeiffer's mother and that's it Shaft is kind of like holding her at all of these hearings promising her that justice will be served in some way and then you get this ironic twist ending where she just 
despite the fact that he's leading her up the stairs and going like, it's finally going to work this time. I promise right. you. I have the witness. It's all good. Right. Right. She just shoots Christian Bale like six times in cold blood and is just like, well, that worked out. And it's like at that point you realize like, oh, she hasn't really spoken this entire movie. No, it feels like it feels like such a twist because you also kind of go like, oh, I remember her now because they right. just sort of did away with her. They didn't yeah. really actually give her enough real estate no and i think it's a very good and like a complicated ending but it feels like the ending that goes uh at the end of a better movie a, a yeah. movie that also doesn't no, sort no, of that's exactly right it's like this is the ending to a movie that is not about shaft like mowing down motherfuckers so he can get the witness yeah like like and also it just like the entire idea of him being like, I don't believe in the courts, so I'm throwing my badge against the wall and then spending the rest of the movie being like, I have to protect this witness so she can testify in court so we can yes. do this properly. And it's like, then you do believe in the court system. What is your game here? Right. If you, it's like he wants to operate outside the law, but he also operates. Uh, he, he still insists that proper punishment is doled out by the justice system in this one case. In every other case, he's like, I will just shoot the guy. And it's so strange. It's funny that the badge throw is probably this movie's biggest special effect shot. And I really remember yes. that being the money shot in the trailer. It's huge in the trailer. It's the right? only yeah. instance of style. Yes. Yeah, because the movie's kind of glossy and like has no, like I think Singleton consciously was like it shouldn't look like the original, which like okay, but the original looks really good. And this kind of yeah, just looks a... you know slick and whatever. It looks okay. I kind of wish that if they were going to adapt the cultural perception of Shaft, they sort of should have adapted it visually as well. Just like in not even like it being like a seventies or funk thing, but in just sort of like having a very special way to shoot it, like using just like analog zooms or something or just fucking like the, the badge throw is such a stylistic choice that I'm like, well, that's the shaft movie I want to see something that has like a flair to it where you're like that shaft baby. Like if you're going to do that with the character, just do it with the whole thing. It is weird. I mean, like, they do shoot this movie in New York, right? Like, it yeah, has no, it's got the location value, stuff. Yep. Right, of real locations of real New York City and whatever, whereas the fucking Tim Story Shaft is shot in Atlanta and feels like it was, you know, shot in a Ziploc bag. But, mm. um, yeah, it, it's, it's funny also in particular to me because – uh, Singleton is two years away from doing Too Fast, Too Furious, which is the most fucking stylized movie in the world, yeah. right? right? Which is a movie that turns people off at the time because they were like, do less, dude. Like, calm <laughs> the fuck down. And, uh, I mean, I'm excited to rewatch that movie for this because I think, weirdly, culture has perhaps caught up to Too Fast, Too Furious, and whereas that was the black sheep of the franchise, now the franchise has sort of come back around to where Too Fast was, where it sticks out less. But that was yeah. very much him being like, I'm going to take this like kind of gritty like boilerplate crime uh, uh, drama and turn it into like Speed Racer. I wonder what I wonder if before he died he got to talk about the legacy of the Fast and Furious franchise and how it's sort of like I, I wonder if people sort of re uh what's the word? Just sort of we had a culture cultural reevaluation of that movie and he gets to go like, Yeah, all right, so fuck you guys or what i, I think totally. it must have happened and like I, I mean he still had to deal with most people saying like well that's definitely the worst but also it's like ludicrous and tyrese become like two of the biggest characters in this whole fucking franchise so much of what he establishes mm -hmm. in intrinsically in the dna of where it goes although jaw rules out the flashiness of it and and like the yes but but like that movie it's weird because it was a huge hit 
and yet no one really cared for it. People kind of it hated Im- it. Right. It was immediately seen as like, well, you ruined a fun thing because there's no yeah. fucking Vin Diesel right. here. Right. To the degree that they're like, okay, let's make a third one that only costs like $30 million and has no returning actors. That it felt like... Singleton, you've killed the mainline franchise, and now Fast and Furious is just a brand name for cheap actors and cars. And yet, yeah. when they bring back the whole gang in, you know, Fast Five, like it's like, yeah, Too Fast, Too Furious is is a linchpin for us. Like right. that's that's crucial to what we're going to set up here. And it's like, it's a you're as you say, Debbie, it's like a weird ten years later. Like, yeah, actually, thanks for that. Like, you know, you actually put a lot of stuff in the water that we actually needed. Like, but I also, I mean, I. I remember reading interviews with it. We'll talk about this movie so much in two weeks, but I remember reading interviews with him where he was so defensive about that movie, where he was like, I don't know. People thought that I had lost the plot because I didn't make what they imagined when they heard John Singleton does too fast, too furious, which is probably a harder edged fast and furious movie. And he was like, no, I was just like really into anime at the time. And I wanted to make a movie that looked and felt like anime. Crazy. Um, But that's why this movie being relatively, uh, I don't know, restrained stylistically is odd. Because uh, he also, I mean, even when we, I go back and reading interviews from the beginning of his career, after Boys in the Hood, he always talked about, like, I'm very afraid of being pigeonhole as the sort of, like, small budget social issues drama guy. The kind of kitchen yeah. sink guy, like, I want to make big genre movies i want to make blockbusters i want to make everything that he very much felt like he wanted to prove to people that he could do these types of movies uh where this movie is like an audition for him to continue doing that in his career also a like reclamation project for his career up until that point in time but then kind of dooms the rest of his career it's a hit too it's like an unambiguous hit but no one wants to touch shaft I don't know. It's weird. By the time it comes out, Jackson's doing interviews and he's saying, I'm definitely going to play Shaft again, but with a different director. Ooh. Ooh. Like, he's like, no question, this is my franchise. I'm going to keep doing it. Jackson's so interesting to me because he's like such a straight talker. And I feel like when you read interviews with him, he's very much like, I'm the least pretentious guy in the world. It is ridiculous that people pay me millions of dollars to act. I'm never going to turn down a job. My career didn't take off until I was like 40. I'm a pro. I know how to make anything work. I like popcorn, you know? Like he always talks about like, I don't love making dour, serious movies because that's not what I like to watch. I'm I'm ready to do heady, heavy theater. But in a movie, I want to make something that people enjoy and want to go see on a Friday night. Totally. And he's like pretty good at most of the time delivering above his weight class and not feeling like he's phoning it in. I think weirdly Shaft 2019 is one of his most phoned in performances. Like that's the one that feels really cynical to me. It's very cynical, but I do recall watching it and feeling like, I think I'm having fun watching him do this, but I think it's because it's so, it's like, it's an adaptation of what we know of Shaft and it's an Mm -hmm. adaptation of what we know of Samuel L. Jackson, but sort of subverted in a way. Like, it starts with, here's what you know about Samuel L. Jackson, so you know that the arc he has to go through is like, well, maybe that's not who he should be. And it is sort of, like, fun to watch in a way, because it's just, it's him having fun with his own image, but under this sort of guise of, we have to tell a story about Shaft. And I'm like, it's not, this isn't a Shaft movie. This is a 
this is a what you know of Samuel L. Jackson right. movie becoming well, that's the, the actual Samuel L. Jackson. Other fucking weird thing about that movie is it's like, okay, now we're going to do the generational family legacy shaft movie, except we're going to retcon Roundtree into being his dad instead of his uncle. There are six years difference between Jackson. Six years? Six years. Age difference between Jackson and Roundtree. So that's like, actually crazy. Yes, Jackson is 72 and Roundtree is 78. That's psycho. But you know what? I could see Shaft having a kid at six six years old. He's pretty cool. I don't know. I can see him I can see him being 24 and just adopting an 18-year-old, being like, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna get this kid out of the system. I'm gonna say Your name's yeah. John Shaft too. It's like, it is? Yeah. All like, right. I, I had a name. <laughs> I've had a name for several okay. No, no, you didn't have a name and you didn't have a game, and now both are Shaft. <laughs> but yes, it, it, the age difference is slight. I feel like, you know, uh, Sam Jackson is someone who's kind of always played younger, especially because it took him a while for yeah. his career to take off culturally. People think of him. Look 72. Yeah, he always seems like he's 45 years old. Yes, he does not look right. like he's 72 yeah. at all. The Tim Story movie is weirdly, I would argue, the oldest he has ever looked and seemed on film. And I think a lot of it has to do with that movie just being bad. But that's a movie where you're just like, him and Roundtree are the same age. Like they're giving Roundtree gray hair and they're right. dying Jackson's goatee, but they're the yeah. same age here. And they like Roundtree's only in the last 15 minutes of the Tim Story movie. He unsurprisingly is the best part of it. This sounds like the worst fucking It's movie. so bad. It's so bad. It plays like they want you to be like, whoa, twist cameo, but then they it's like in every trailer and it's on the right. poster and you're like, well, just to have him there for more of the movie. I don't know. For it's the so marketing, it felt like the hook for the movie was he's going to be in the whole thing. He's not going to be just yeah. the uncle at the bar like he was in the Singleton movie and then he's kept till the very end like he's fucking bruce willis and gi joe retaliation but mm. the, the whole movie's about how shaft was this fucking deadbeat dad and then it's like well now you're introduced to the other deadbeat dad who is the original shaft and they make this joke where he's like don't be so hard on yourself you were a good dad once you stopped pretending to be my uncle and it's like once he stopped pretending to be your uncle. So when? When you were 60? He's still your uncle in this movie. And you're close to retirement age. But is he? How how old is Shaft supposed to be in this movie? We don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And also the timeline of the fucking, the other Shaft, the Tim Story Shaft, is that he has uh, Jesse T. Usher, whatever his name is, like 10 years before this movie, I think. That kid's yeah, bored it, sometime in the nineties. It ha yeah, the way that it tracks Shaft has a kid in this movie, and also just we don't hear about his love life or the fact that he is a father. Right. Right. Well, it is because it's his duty to please the booty, and you know, so like that's getting in that's the right. way. David, David, he repeats the line. He repeats oh, the line. God. They make it as catchy. That's, oh, like, that's true. Right. That's like the expendables where like Bruce Willis is like, uh yippee kaye, motherfucker, or whatever, and you're just like, God, how Schwarzenegger much money says, did I'll you be demand? Bad. Yeah. Right. Oh. St St Stallone yells out Adrian in the middle of a scene. <laughs> that would be good. That would be straight up good if he did that. The very first, uh, I'm remembering, the very first scene of Samuel L. Jackson's in Shaft 2019, I'm realizing, is him opening the door to his private uh, investigations office and there's glitter on his face. And then you see that there's yes. a woman who has glitter on her chest that he's been motorboating, I guess. Yes. So they just like, right out of the gate, want you to know, like, Shaft, you know, Shaft has sex. Don't worry about that. And it's like, okay. Uh, but 
what does that have? It's just it's they it's still so much an adaptation of what we know of Shaft that it gets yes. in the, the way of, of right. proper. Yeah, it's also just so bizarre that that movie is ostensibly a fairly hard R, but it also has the aesthetics and energy of a '90s Tim Allen family comedy. Yes, like it. It, it feels like Jungle to Jungle. It feels PG thirteen, right? Uh, and yeah. it's so much about like fatherhood and shit. But that's this weird thing is like. Well, when they announced that and you went like, oh, modern shaft, that that sounds cool. Make a modern shaft. Then when Sam Jackson was announced, you were like, so it's a sequel to the Singleton shaft, which weirdly was unsequelized, which kind of felt like they could have just made three more of these and maybe they would have figured out the formula at some point in time. Yeah, I also think I vaguely I vaguely remember that they remixed the theme song. They don't just play the theme song as normal, which that's the that's the easiest part yeah don't do it just they, just hit play just go to itunes yeah. theme from shaft hit play there's also a big gun <laughs> shootout set to be my baby um okay but but that that weird fucking it thing just of all like, sounds like a bummer everything it's such a bummer yeah. it's such it, a it bummer really is. uh but but that it is a sequel to this movie that is totally so disconnected from that movie that retcons the relationship between the two previous shafts in that and that it's like a sequel to a movie that no one remembers, which is more trying to comment on the cultural perception of what Shaft is. But as you said, also more than anything is just making a comedy using Samuel Jackson's persona yeah. as if it's like analyze this. And it's like, well, you've seen this guy play these types of roles before. It's right along with Shaft. Yes. Right. It's right. It's it's anodyne versus this movie. You're like, oh, my God, like this movie has so many hard swerves and right. is like yeah. so weirdly charged and doesn't land a lot of it. But whereas this movie you're describing just sounds lame. Did you guys know that Samuel Jackson was in seven movies in 2019? OK, can we try to guess the seven movies? Please, in 2019? please go ahead. Oh, in 2019, 2019. So he, so he's in Shaft. That's the gimme. Yes. Avengers Endgame? He is in Avengers Endgame. He walks along a porch. Is Captain Marvel that same year? Yes. Okay, so that's three. Okay. Okay. Huh. Um, oh, oh, Rise of Skywalker. He is. Thank you. I thought you might wow. not get that. Does it does a voice? No. He tells Ray that she's the one or whatever Ray. they all tell her at the end there. Okay, um, David, is there another franchise film in the mix, or have we knocked out the franchises where he had obligatory? There's another smoke? franchise film that you are Spider-Man forgetting. Far From Home. There you go. He did three of them that he year. He did three yeah. of them that year. Well, of course and they're he did. all kind of super different performances, yes. I will say. One of them, like, he's playing a parody of himself. He's playing an alien correct. impersonating him. <laughs> right, yes. Uh, you have two more to go. Awesome. Okay. One is a big um, movie that we covered on this podcast, and one is a movie that no one ever heard of. It's a big oh. movie we covered on this podcast. Glass? Yeah, where he's... Glass. Wow. Mm. Of course. What, what are we And then the last what movie is, it's a war movie. Oh, is it the, what's it called, The Last Full Measure? That's right. That's okay. right. Oh. Where you're like, oh, oh I, I, guess I was Samuel Jackson was in a war movie. Yeah. Oh, this is the Damn, thing. I, busy man. This is the thing I was going to say before I got distracted by five other things I was going to say. So, so he has this very unpretentious attitude of like, people offer me a part, I'll do it, right? And he's also known for just being the most prepared actor. Like that's the thing everyone says about him is he just shows up, 
the first take is perfect and he is like he got three takes and he doesn't yeah. suffer fools gladly and he gets really frustrated when people aren't professional and there was some new york times piece on him that's really fascinating where it, it a lot of it's talking to his longtime agent or manager and just saying that they have to call him once a week and like calm him down and go like sam you can't expect everyone to be as professional as you are you will never be happy with that expectation but he's a guy who just like hits his marks gets his lines knows his relationship with the camera nails it like from the get-go yeah. and then wants to go play golf right like it's just like this is my job i clock in my clock out let me go play golf um but uh he there are interviews where he clearly gets kind of defensive about the ways in which he feels like he has not gotten enough respect in the industry. And when he does, he goes like, I don't know, you tell me. Like he sort of refuses to acknowledge the thing. And so there's a famous one I remember when, uh, uh, after Django came out and that movie was clearly kind of designed to be like maybe a, a supporting actor play for him. And then he got no precursor noms and Christoph Waltz wins the fucking Oscar. And I remember him doing some Oscar season thing and they're like, well, this is sort of like an Oscar play for you. And he's like, I don't know. No one's nominating me. So I guess it isn't like sort of like bitter about it. And then I found I, some YouTube rabbit hole watched the interview he did on Howard Stern right after this movie came out. And the movie was a hit, right? It opened at number one. It opened big. It kind of yep. dropped we'll off quickly. But like opening weekend, it seemed like an unqualified hit. Uh, and now it was oh, a hit. right Jackson has his franchise here's a big summer movie he's the only guy above the title he's playing this iconic character he'll get to keep on playing these and uh, you know Stern is asking these questions where he's like well this is like huge for your career right and he's like I don't know you tell me and he's like I mean this is like you're the only guy on the poster you get like the girl you're like getting the action you're going to make a ton of these sequels like that has to change your perception in Hollywood where you've mostly been the like supporting guy or the second lead or the funny dude or whatever. And he's like, I don't know. We'll see. And he had this very kind of like, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it kind of attitude. But it is interesting to think about that. Like he was kind of proven right that this like didn't right. really bear out into other films like this you know he's got a couple others but he pretty much goes back to shit like as you said like rules of the game and basic where it's like he's one of three people he's one of two people i think a lot of that is him being a longtime actor in hollywood but also recognizing that even like as a lead he's still like a black man and he he'll have to like audition for the rest of his life and have totally. to do all these things like I'm not, he's not, he doesn't want to go on the radio and be like, hell yeah, I'm a star now. Because as soon as he says that, people will be like, this guy seems like he's full of himself. Yes. We can't, no. we don't want to do that. I think that's also just how he's maintained such a professionality. He's like, he's like, I have to be the kind of guy who shows up and people are like, he's going to deliver. And yeah. that's the only way I can continue to work. He, I think that mentality also gives him this thing of like, I can't turn down a job because I, at any point, my career could be over. Right. The only movies I can think of that he is the lead snakes no on a plane lead are snakes on a plane and coach carter like there's really like almost nothing else like where yeah. it's like samuel L. jackson that's it damn yeah and snakes on a plane obviously became this kind of like parody 
of Samuel L. Jackson being in movies, or that's yeah. what people wanted it to be, and then it, it's actually just kind of lame. But like that was the fun of that, ex- whatever that marketing uh, experience. Demi, you're you're 100 right. That is the subtext of all those interviews. There are also times where he does go off in that way. You're saying he can't do where I know, like he's done interviews where he's like, I should have won the fucking Oscar. I feel like he's very playful when he does it, though. Yeah, he's playful. Yeah. He jokes about it, but he's like, yeah. like fucking Pulp Fiction's on T-shirts who talks about Martin Landau and Ed Wood. Uh, you know, a statement of a guy who clearly has never listened to Blank Check, uh, where I talk about <laughs> Martin Landau and Ed Wood constantly. But, but he's like, he has that attitude, and he also loves to flaunt the fact that I think he is now, especially with all the Marvel movies, the highest grossing actor of all time. Like by Absolutely. by yeah. leaps and bounds, by so much because of the Marvel movie. I mean, that's. I think right. he's someone who only wants to comment on public perception or what is com- is like publicly accepted as like no one would fight him on this. Like he he'll say like yeah, Pulp Fiction was one of the biggest fucking movies of the of that year, but right. he's not going to say it the year it comes out. He'll be like, uh, right. we'll and see. it's like and it's because of me. And Travolta was the one who got to be the star for years yeah. and years after that. You know, uh, I I mean I feel like he does often sort of say like. I maybe should be paid more. I maybe should have gotten nominated for more Oscars. Like he kind of yeah. has that vibe to him, but it's true. It's like, I, I I don't know. It's such a weird, fascinating career. I feel like in lieu of an Oscar, he's accepted what may be a greater like award, but just sort of being like one of the only actors whose uh, sort of his personality is as... Uh, castable as him as an actor like you can yes, put him in a both. slot and he'll be like dependable and he will n- nail the thing but you can also write a thing where you're just like this is a it's only can be Samuel L. Jackson or it's like like his role in the other guys are just such a parody of Samuel L. Jackson where it's like you can there's like so many people you can put in that role but it's like it's got to be Samuel L. Jackson or, or like a Samuel L. Jackson type where it's like he he is a bankable star but also can play himself and it's just like you will cast him being like we just need himself or you can get him and have like a fucking glass type role like or old boy or Django Unchained it's like he he can do so many things but he doesn't need to get like awards recognition for it because culturally I think he's already gotten that he'll definitely get like an honorary award at some point he will and he might eventually write like do some prestige movie where the yeah. oscars are like oh oh we'll shake off the dust and be like we've decided it's time for you to win an oscar but that's that annoying yeah. oscar thing where they've decided quote exactly. you know like and that that just kind right. of comes off terribly half the time it does feel to me like both Django and especially hateful eight were designed to try to get him an oscar like tarantino was like enough's enough now Django, that's a really fucking tricky character it was unlikely that was going to work even though i like think he he should have gotten on a possibly one for that just because the character is so off-putting but that's example demi of what you're talking about where he was just like i'm gonna drop the samuel jackson shit and give you like full investment into a character in the reality of this movie and then hateful eight feels like it's a movie designed just to showcase everything he can do but the movie doesn't connect his movies have made 27 and a half billion dollars worldwide but crazy it's pretty good he's the number one number Number two is Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Number three is Tom Hanks. And number four, of course, we know her. We love her. Scarlett Johansson. I don't know. Scarlett the Marvel yeah. movies have thrown everything off. You know? Yeah. I, how, how many people of the top ten are not in the MCU? 
Great question. Uh, I'm I'm looking now. I'm looking now, and it's two. It's oh! Tom Hanks and Harrison Ford. That That's sucks. It. That's I'm honestly shocked. Harrison Ford hasn't been in the MCU. Honestly, I know that's actually a good. I, I actually had to think for a second. Where I'm like, wait, does he play like a space cop or something? Like, I, I did I forget? Like, in my head, he's he's uh, Tommy Lee Jones's role in First Avenger, but I right, he might sure. as well be. Not that Tommy Lee Jones yeah. didn't rock the house, but uh, yeah, Tom Cruise is now eleventh behind wild. Chris oh. Pratt. And I'm sure that kills him. It's the number of Marvel movies and the fact that everyone's in so many of them that that fucks the yep. stat up. But then you have to think that yeah. Samuel Jackson was already number one before the Marvel universe right. started because he also has yeah. fucking Jurassic Park and three Star Wars movies. Yeah. And like, yeah, it's just it fucking and like the Incredibles and like, yeah. you know, yeah. like all kinds of shit. But it, it I is, mean, look. it is fascinating. Yes. I mean, I think we sort of have been talking about like this movie feels like it's among other things trying to be the culmination of here is what the Samuel Jackson movie star persona is codified into its own franchise and then uh 19 years later they make a movie that's essentially just parodying that and both of them become weird non-starters for his career which is wild because i do think they could have made a movie like an original character that was just it's samuel l jackson and that might have done just as well i think samuel l jackson is maybe as if not more recognizable than shaft uh i I, yeah at this point point though it's like the right moment culturally to combine the two things even though it probably would have behooved him better to just be like let's create our own shaft type character oh i mean i mean by the point of like 2019 when that oh by 2019 it makes no fucking sense especially when you're just like wait a second it's a it's a movie about legendary character john shaft the second being a deadbeat dad i forgot what that guy's quirks are um, the last decade of this industry has been such a panic of them trying to be like, we just need some sort of recognizable name to get 10% of the audience. And then yeah. from there on, we'll trust that you can get more. It doesn't matter how connected the property is or how big the audience might be. Can I say one one final thing about this movie before we get to the box oh, office please. game? That's like a thing I both like about this movie and find frustrating, but I always get roped into it. Few things get me more excited when watching a film when I feel like, oh, man, this story is like branching out. It's getting expansive, right? Because like I I feel like the most satisfying thing to me is when a movie is able to set like 15 plates spinning at the same time narratively and somehow make them all convene in a satisfying way. And that that weird second act we sort of talked around that's sort of formless of this movie – I I do get a charge from it because it's when the story starts to unfold, even though it ultimately has no idea what to do with any of the things it's setting up. But when it's like, okay, you've set up peoples as this alternate track, then the two of them get put in the, the cell together. Then there's the weird thing of like Bale trying to hawk the jewelry to hire him to kill Tony Collette, the search for Tony Collette, Bale being beholden to him and needing to sell his heroin because also they paid off Hadea. Like there's this moment where the movie feels like it's becoming the wire and trying to show the entire spider web. And it's like, yeah. as you said, the Lynn Thigpen ending is interesting in and of itself. It's the ending to a movie that this film is fundamentally not. And it also makes this film feel kind of unsatisfying because it's just like, well, the movie was just about a lot of shit ramping up and never really happening while this one right. guy just flew to Switzerland and tried to skate by. Yeah, I feel like if it 
even, I mean, it wouldn't be a fix, but if it had ended in some way where it's like either Tony Collette does not testify or like something goes, something happens that makes it clear that Christian Bale is going to get away with it. And then the like thing, like Lynn Thigpen stuff happens. You kind of get the sense of like, oh, well that all tracks. But for that ending to come after you're like, well, Shaft got, got his man. It's just like, oh, what's the. What's this then? It's also weird that Tony Collette's like the MacGuffin of the movie. And here she is like a year after The Sixth Sense. She's such a fucking good actor. She's just been nominated for an Academy Award. You feel like she's going to be the secret weapon of this movie when she comes in. And she's got like one scene where she's good. Why is her character still in town? They just find her playing basketball with some kids in the park. Right. They're like, she's that gone. That makes no sense. They paid yeah. her $100,000 to get out of town. And she's like, cool. So I'll just like not I'll go, go to the home Bronx? that often. <laughs> right. Wild. <laughs> I just love when, when, when the two giant Italian guys show up to like protect her. Like I, it's anyway, we, we have to talk about the box office. Griffin, yeah. please. Okay. June 16th. 2000 shaft opened to 21 million dollars yeah which is pretty big for again a hard r right movie made 70 domestic 107 worldwide like it was a you know it was a hit off of what budget it was 50 in total yeah like a 48 million dollar budget which is high like this movie doesn't look that expensive i don't know why it cost that much money uh, but 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 it made like a hundred million worldwide. Yeah, everyone's happy. It did what seventy here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this, this should have been a franchise starter. Uh, and I, you know, I the reviews were mixed, but it felt like it was like enjoyed enough passively by people that they could have put one of these out two years later and everyone would have gone to see it. Right. They would have just gone like, yeah, cool. I'll see Sam Jackson in a trench coat again. Who gives a shit? I really don't know why a sequel didn't happen until 2019. I don't I don't know what the story is it, there. It is also just funny to think about how radically the summer box office has transformed where you're like, June 16th, R-rated Shaft opens to a robust $21 million. Is sequel on the way? Yeah, right. Now it would be like, you know, head of Paramount commits public suicide as apology for terrible opening of movies. Right, like, well, but- now you have like solo opens to disappointing 160. Six opening one. Yeah. 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 Justice League makes shameful 700 million worldwide. Uh, uh, Okay. Number two at the box office is another crime thriller. Okay. um, With a a star of the moment uh, where I think, I imagine we're all fans. Uh, Hmm. You know, he's, uh, he's, there's nobody like him. And then a, a young, a young, a newer star who just won an Oscar or is going to win an Oscar this year. Um, the, the it's the not the bone detective, is, is it? No, it mm. well, the one that's called the bone collector. You nailed it. Fuck, Angelina fuck. Jolie is in this movie. It would be funny if the bone collector was literally called the bone detective. I guess it's, that's just what yeah. bones is. <laughs> it's just bones. I'd be into that. It's a good movie. <laughs> oh, okay. Shaft 2000 and the bone collector were both movies that uh, were in my parents' DVD collection where I'd see them all the time and just be like, I don't really understand what that is. And now I'm like, why do my parents love these movies or how did they feel about them? these that they're so etched into my mind did they just love crime thrillers of the late 90s and early 2000s but also demi you grew up in a household with those two dvds and never watched them it doesn't sound like your parents were like putting them on again like they bought them and kept them on the shelf 
all the time there were movies that I would see around and just be like, I don't know what that is because my parents weren't watching these movies. Yeah. I think my parents are the kind of people who either buy movies thinking like, oh, I might watch that, which I do a lot, or they buy a movie being like, I liked that movie. I would like to watch it again one day, but they don't because they don't they never watch do. movies. Demi, am I misremembering? No. Or are you the person who every time you went to visit your parents put one more copy of Click on DVD? It, it was... It was really that I, uh, at one moment, put 57 copies in their DVD collection uh, for a video. It wasn't like and a, then... a slow death by a thousand cuts. No, it was, it was, here's immediately this. Um, and then I, uh, it was like while I think I was in college, and I went back to college, and I came back like seven months later, and they were still there, and they hadn't mentioned it. <laughs> I was like, what? You guys don't see this or notice <laughs> it or whatever. Working, they were working through it. They were probably on like number 22 or yeah, whatever, right? Yeah. <laughs> they were waiting for one of them to be different. Yeah. Uh, David, the answer to this movie is gone in 60 seconds, is it not? It, it's, go- it's gone in 60 seconds. I, I, ah. I, will, I do want to shout out producer Ben for chiming in two hours in to say that The Bone Collector is a good movie, extremely on brand. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ben. <laughs> of course. But sadly, we are talking about Gone in 60 Seconds, the car boosting movie with Nicolas Cage and Angelina. Is this movie, is that yeah. post Fast and Furious or around it the same time? It is the year before. Got it. Okay. It's a year before. An interesting thing to think about. Yes. The year before. Yeah. Man, and, and John Singleton's career changed really in this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And also Gone in 60 Seconds feels like the type of car aficionado movie that dies the second Fast and Furious takes over. You know, yeah. where it's just like car cultures. If people like cars, you can make a movie with a bunch of nice cars in them versus like it's a superhero franchise based around drivers. It's like, do you want to see nice cars or do you want to see people just fucking drive? Gone in 60 Seconds, of course, also a Disney movie. Yeah, Gone in 60 Seconds, a now? Disney movie. Yeah. Hmm. Bruckheimer. Number three, uh, it's a comedy. Uh, another comedy in which uh, a major black actor. Well, no, no, another movie in which a major black actor plays a policeman. Um, but it's a comedy. This big one. mama's this house a comedy. Big, big mama's, mama's house. house. Big mama's house. I believe. Oh, wow. I saw it three times in theater. Mm. I saw it one time in theater. I don't think I've ever seen it. My dad loved it so much he called up my grandfather and was like, "You got to take the boys to see this movie. You're gonna love it." And so <laughs> Did I saw your it. Grandfather love it. He loved it. He loved it. It was the one scene where my dad was like, you're not going to believe this scene. He talked it up as if it was like the most iconic scene in comedy history. And it's the scene where Martin Lawrence gets trapped in the shower while he's trying to case Big Mama's house and she starts pooping. And he's in the shower and she's pooping and there are poop sound effects and he's reacting like it smells bad. Oh, I also forgot. That's a scene in the 2000 Shaft in which uh, – Jeffrey Wright stares down Christian Bale while taking a shit. That's and, true. And they drop insane. the sound effect of one turd plopping into the toilet <laughs> at the end when he makes a dramatic point. Well, also, the man knows how to, like, you know. You didn't talk about a shiv. Oh, yeah, he's big. He's yeah. got this ice pick. Yeah, yeah and he stabs yeah. himself. Well, okay, the moment where he stabs himself, they have this funk music that drops, and it's so uh, not the tone. Like, it, it, I think it wants you to be like, whoa, this guy's really weird. But in my head, it's like any other score. And they'd be like, this guy's a psycho. Yeah. And you should, this is like the escalation scary. of what he means as a villain. But it's not scary. It's just sort of like, whoa, weird because of the funk music. That scene, yes, is it feels like something Jeffrey Wright tried out. And they were like, holy shit. 
and as you say, they completely undercut it in the moment, and it's kind of like the yeah drowned out in the mix as well. It's a weird scene. Yeah, um, it's as close as they get to making him a uh, developed character. Yes, in this. because his brother is dead, and he's suddenly charged yeah. up. But then, yeah, you're also like at the end of the day, your your job is that you're a, as an assassin for Christian Bale. Why didn't Christian Bale just hire someone else? Why did he hire this random guy? It doesn't matter. Mm. You've never seen Big Mama's House, Demi, you were saying. I have not, but I think that's another movie in my parents' DVD collection. I feel really? like my parents just got a, a box of, of DVDs in the year 2000 and then never again. <laughs> I, I've done this riff before, but it's just one of the most fascinating like sequel approaches to a movie where the first one is Nia Long is like a witness. They put her into, uh, she's on the run from her ex-husband, who's Terrence Howard. She goes to hide out at her big mama's house. So Martin Lawrence specifically needs to impersonate her big mama in order to keep her safe. And then the sequel is like, there's an incident at a college we need someone to go undercover. And he's like, cool, I'll take out the Big Mama costume. Big Mama means nothing. <laughs> like, really? There are two more movies yeah. where he assumes the role of Big Mama and no one knows Big Mama as a person. And in the third one, isn't it he has a son Correct. and the son also and has to like, dress I like I guess him. you're little mama now. What the fuck? What is yeah. this? You, this I is, believe the, the poster of the third one is literally Martin Lawrence is holding up the wardrobe his son is going to have to wear. And his son is like, ah, why? Like, he's like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. This seems overly complicated. Can't I just put a mustache on? We don't have any ideas for how to do a sequel after it's been five years past. They got a kid now. Yes, they always it's like they have a secret kid and it's actually a hot 25 year old. Yeah, which is which is what the third shaft is. Uh, yeah. Yep. OK, number Five at the box office. So number four, where are we? Number four is a sequel. It's one of the most successful films of the year. Mission Impossible um, 2. It's Mission Impossible 2. I think it is the highest grossing mm. film of the year. Or, or Grinch. Yes. I always I always forget if like, I think maybe it's highest worldwide and Grinch is it's, highest domestic yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yes. It's um, the John Woo motorcycle Mission Impossible. Uh-huh. Correct. Mm-hmm. With a, the, the great character of Sandgun, of course. Yes, uh, Sandgun. Uh, a, gun, a gun that Tom Cruise kicks out of the sand to shoot someone. <laughs> Greatest scene in the movie. That's the only Mission Impossible movie where I truly don't remember anything besides... Well, I okay, no. I remember the uh, rock climbing in the beginning, yep. and I remember rock the climbing. motorcycle crashing yeah. in no, the No, that's air. the thing. It, it, it is almost yeah. impossible to remember. There's a middle two hours it. there <laughs> two hours? That, that's tough. That's tough. Wild. <laughs> Doing that commentary really solidified that, where whenever people defend that movie, I'm like, I agree with everything you're saying. Now rewatch the two hours in between everything you just right. described to me, because it's there. There's that scene where, like, Brendan Gleeson is, like, sweating on a hospital bed for, like, a while. And, yeah. like, it's just one of those classic movies where, like, when you're watching it, you're like, I can't remember why they're doing this. Like, the movie leaves yeah. you as you're watching it. Anyway. Number it's five at the box office is it is a shame. It's the one bad one. Uh, number five is an animated film. Griffin, we will cover it dinosaur? on this podcast one day. It's not dinosaur. Mm. Okay, but that if we're gonna cover seven, it, if we're gonna cover it one day, uh, animated two thousand. It's not correct. Hmm. It's a science fiction animated film. Oh, it's Titan AE. It's Titan AE. Don Bluth's final Titan movie. AE. Titan A weirdly wow. has become one of our like longest held promise episodes. Like I feel like I know. it just comes up so much where it's like some de- like that's become the Hulk for us now. Why? It just feels like such a <laughs> weird artifact. 
And Don Bluth has such an odd career trying to like destroy Disney and almost making it work and then really yeah. not making it work. And that's sort of like such a, a peak example that's it. movie. That's, yeah. That's the one that kills him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't kill him, but it's, you know, that's it the kills, last one. It kills the career. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Titan A. Wow. Yeah. Number six, I just want to shout out is the um, romantic comedy Boys and Girls. Uh, oh. Uh, starring, of course, Freddie Prince Jr., Claire Forlani, and Jason, Jason Biggs. Biggs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wait a second. I'm trying to remember what the tagline is for Boys and Girls. Okay. I, I want to tell you the entire poster. Let's do it. Uh, okay. Here I'm we looking go. at the poster. Uh, yes. This, this is what I remember because I remember the trailer doing this same thing with the warning said in voiceover. Right. You, you have um, uh, the two girls, Claire Forlani and Amanda Detmer, and you have the boys, Freddie and Jason. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freddie versus Jason. But with those two guys, just yeah. the pitch I'm throwing out there. Yeah, um, great pitch. The top, the top tagline says "opposites attack." So I guess it's like boys and girls are opposites, and they're gonna like. But yeah, below boys and girls is the second tagline: "Warning, sex changes everything." Yeah. That's now, it. I, That's I rem- just that, that. No other explanation of why they might be warning you about this. I, I remember like Don LaFontaine or whoever saying that in the trailer. <laughs> and the stamp like went over the screen. And it felt almost like that was the full title of the movie. Like it was called Boys and Girls Warning Sex Changes Everything. <laughs> um, my, oh my, my brother, James, he passed a future guest of the show went to see that movie in theaters and was like, it sucked, but there's one line that is so funny. And James is going to come back on the show to talk about Space Jam, a new legacy, an episode that will be happening very soon. And so I just want to put a pin in that because I want to see if he remembers what that line was. Because for months, he would be like, that one line Jason Biggs says is so funny in that movie. All right. Do you guys have movies like that where you're just like, this is from decades ago, but I distinctly remember my response to this one line. Yes. I, I, I especially yeah. trailers, like maybe movies that I never even saw. Oh yeah. But I, and then I finally will watch them. And I'm like, Oh, I forgot that that trailer line was burned into my brain forever and ever and ever. Honestly, it's my duty to please that booty. <laughs> Vividly remember several lines from the Bringing Down the House trailer, uh, mm. in- including the iconic, you got me straight tripping, boo. Well, that's right. Right. Yes. But I, I remember seeing Chicken Run in 2000 and they uh, have someone says where there's a will, there's a way. And someone else says, and I will be going this way. And I was just like, yeah, wow. That's the, that's the only joke that's ever been made. That one <laughs> it is, is a good joke. Demi, yeah. I was not anticipating because I the one I feel like from the trailer, I remember being played to death. And I love Chicken Run is I don't want to be a pie. I don't like gravy. Yes. It's a good line. Well, that's a good one. But something about that one line, I was just like, oh, oh, oh yeah. You tricked. I knew that I know the setup, but this is a different punchline. Rocky. And so I was just like, what the hell? Dirty rooster. Yeah. Um, Incredible. I, I rewatched a Shanghai Noon for the first time in a while recently for Patrick Willem's uh, Infinity Pod and a big line in my family, which then watching it again in context was like, that's weird that we just said this all the time because everyone in my family found this movie so funny. But I'll just say the line completely out of context now. You said wet shirt don't break, not piss shirt bend bars. What? What? <laughs> what? That's my point. You said that all the time? All the time. We were like, remember that funniest line ever in any movie ever? Wait, 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 wait a second. Wow, you, you said wet shirt don't break, not piss shirt bend bars. 
Jesus. We just were like, that's the funniest. We all thought that was the funniest fucking why thing. Why is in the world. that funny? I don't even know why that's funny. I I can't I, yeah, I, I, I can't know. get into it. I can't get into it. We don't have the time. I will say this. I'll say this as a final thing. I was watching Shaft 2019, which has, as we've said, a great many issues, right? Many of them conceptually yeah. from page one. Uh but, uh, you know, it wants to do this thing of like, oh, Shaft is like a guy of his time. He's not PC anymore. Here's his son, who's this modern man. One of the many issues with the movie is it can't decide if Shaft is uncool for being antiquated and sexist or Shaft's son is uncool for being a modern man. And much right. of the movie is him calling him like a, a pussy soy boy. Yeah. Um so much of the marketing for the movie uh, was definitely in the former because a lot of the marketing was just sort of like, why don't you take your avocado toast yes. and shove it up your dick hole? <laughs> and then in the movie, it's just sort of like, what's the <laughs> so much? Of that. What's the point? Right. It's it really feels like they wanted to market it to boomers and to like people just like, I don't know, right wing people whose entire perception of millennials is uh, they're too PC. Yes. And I'm just like, like, like I so depressing that yes. like a shaft movie yes, is really about is. shaft cucking millennials well, this <laughs> like, is the other thing the, the, the other thing is like mm, i i agree yeah. with you demi that that movie works best when it's sort of about the weirdness of samuel jackson and the sadness of this guy still existing in 2019 acting like nothing's changed yes. like that i think it should have been an austin powers type right. take where it's just like shaft right, is unfrozen right. out of the 70s right. and everyone's like what the fuck is wrong with you <laughs> You can't just shout to get laid. I So I was doing the thought experiment while watching it because Jesse T. Usher, who's one of these guys who's sort of been positioned as like, oh, is he a new leading man? He'll play Will Smith's son in Independence Day, you know, resurgence. Like, he can be your legacy actor. Is not inherently a comedic actor, right? And that role is designed as no. like the funny, young, modern shaft, Right. Like he's not supposed to be a cool movie star guy. He's supposed to be the one who can banter well with Samuel Jackson. And I was doing the thought experiment of like, look, obviously I'd want this thing to get a fucking page one rewrite. But like, who is the actor you could cast as John Shaft the third that would make this movie funnier to me? And I was like racking right. my brain. And genuinely, genuinely, the answer I came to is I want to see Demi play young Shaft. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know. That's a zero box office movie. I mean, yeah. but you know what else was a zero box office movie? Yeah, Jesse right. T. Usher and Shaft. <laughs> That's fair. But I, I was thinking, if it was you with Samuel Jackson, I would have found that funny. I don't know if the movie would have. I would have had a blast. You would have had a good time. Yeah, everyone be like, Demi's having so much fun. Everyone's review would be Demi's having so much fun, which is their way of being like, this movie sucks. <laughs> 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 it seems like you had a lot of fun. That's what people would say to you at parties. I, you can just tell they're having, they're enjoying it. They had a nice time. The dinners every night after they wrapped must have been delightful. Yeah, I'll show up to set and wear a red coat and just be like, "Oh man, I got my my gotta go to the Apple Store and have Samuel Jackson be like, "You kids, oh podcast." So much app confusion in that movie. <laughs> oh, good. That's good. Oh, great. Yeah, it's it really hitting hitting all the hallmarks of what studios want to say about. Uh, people now, which is just they love apps and uh, yeah. avocado toast or some shit. I I, I several oh, yeah. times had to pause the movie to double check that it did in fact come out in 2019 because it feels like yeah. it's 10 years old. It it felt like two th a 2004 movie. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Demi, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Let's talk about Shaft. Always a pleasure. So we're just talking about Shaft. 
Um, I can dig it. Anything you want to plug? Uh, watch the Ember Ruffin show. Great and show. It's really that's good. It very good. Uh, yeah, that's it. Got nothing Peacock. else. Peacock. I'm just sitting here. Peacock. Uh, oh yeah, sure. Peacock. You know, but it doesn't. You free. don't need the premium. It's uh It's on the that's free right. tier. It's on the 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 ad tier. Yeah. And right. I know they've been that's doing right. some some bursts of also uh, broadcasting the show on NBC. So sometimes it's airing. Yes. I have no idea if it's still the case. I think we were syndicated on NBC for 10 weeks. I don't know when that was. It might be over. But, you know, turn on NBC and maybe you'll see a thing I wrote. And maybe you'll just see New Amsterdam instead. Hey. Hey. Watch out. Look, hey. That's every time I turn on my TV. Logan from Gilmore Girls is a doctor. Yeah. Right? That's what yeah. New Amsterdam is. I think yep. that's Isn't that what the it resident? Is. Oh, That's the resident. I we fucked can't up. get into this. We'll, we'll be here for uh, another you, hour. You simmed it. Try oh, simmed I it. simmed it up. Sims. I simmed it up. <laughs> um, Demi, thank you again for being here. And folks, <laughs> great. Thank <laughs> reset. you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Ben, don't correct me. I don't want to say the thing. I want to say subscribe. It's not right. What's the real thing? They've changed it. Now it says follow. Oh, so you can oh, follow okay. a show. You don't subscribe to a show anymore on Apple Podcasts. They changed the bum, but I'm going to be like Shaft. I'm going to be anachronistic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, it should be follow. Go to Patreon. It shouldn't be follow. It should not. Uh, it, go to blank check. Go to patreon.com slash blank check for blank check special features where we're talking Twilight. We're covering the Twilight movies. Uh, oh, yeah. Movies that have a very, very chill relationship to sex, much like the Shaft franchise. Um, Shaft is the anti-Twilight. Yeah. In, in, I've always said this. In so many ways. Um, uh, go to uh, blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit and go to our Shopify page for some real nerdy merch. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media, Alex Barron, AJ McKeon for editing, help, and David... We got a new member of the team. Yep. Research. We got we got uh, research on this episode done by J.J. Bursch and Nick Loriano. So thanks to them. And thank you to Lane Montgomery and the Great American Novel for our theme song. Tune in next week for Baby Boy. And as always, I am legally obligated. No, I should just let you. That's how it should end. No, le- do the legal obligation. What was that? I'm legally obligated to let you know it's my duty to please that boating. There we go. Oh my god! Wait, that. Oh. <laughs>